Hello and welcome. This is Just Human number 212 and it's going to be the Derm Report part 9. I think we can finish today. I think we can finish uh, what we have left of this report and then I'll need to work on some kind of summary substack. Um, hopefully in time for whatever events are coming at us with a potential Trump indictment. I thought that we finished on page 255. But I'm looking at it and I'm like, I don't think I, I don't think I remember reading all of that or looking at these notes here. So I don't think it was 255. I think, I think I need to go and check. I think I need to go and look at my, the very end of my last video and make sure I have the right number. Um, I thought I had it right, but uh, I, I've been leaving things up, like leaving this tab exactly where it where I left off, so I could just open it up and. It would already be where I left off, but my whole browser reset and I had to, everything, everything, everything refreshed. <laughs> so uh, I guess because it's been a, a week since I, I streamed my own show, <clears throat> which is kind of, kind of funny to me. It's kind of weird because I haven't done my own show and yet I've done, I don't know how many shows. <laughs> I've done an extra power hour and defected and then another power hour and then also eye of the storm on Tuesday night. So I've done like four other really long shows. Like all of them were three or four hours long, but I haven't been here doing my own show. So it is good to be back. And I know that this is an odd time in the afternoon. So if you're catching me live, I see you, Jason and governmented mushroom. I see you guys. Thank you for being here. I'm doing it at an odd time today because I had the opportunity to go live. So I thought I would just I would just take it and uh, try and get this report in. Because I desperately want to finish my Durham work before this Trump indictment starts. And I'll go ahead and say a few words about it. Um, about the the Trump potential Trump indictment. One, we don't have it. We don't have the Trump indictment. Um, so we don't know what it actually is. There's lots of reporting going on that it's, it's going to be these charges. It's, they've got them on this and this It's going to be seven counts. I saw techno fog just put out an article. It just hit my, my email saying Trump facing a hundred years in prison. And, um, I mean, I, I get it. Everybody wants to be the first to report on this and everybody wants to have the breaking news um, on this story, but we don't have, we don't have any paperwork. Um, there's nothing public. There's no letter. There's no indictment. There's nothing. All we know for sure is that Trump's attorneys received a letter letting them know that he's a target. And then he has to, he has a subpoena to appear in Miami court or in the district court in Miami this coming Tuesday at, I think three o'clock. So the day before his birthday, he's going to uh, he has to appear in federal district court. And um, two of his attorneys, the news just broke, two of his attorneys have left his team and his defense in this matter is going to be handled by the same defense team that's handling his um, handling his case with Stormy Daniels and Michael Cohen, the Bragg case. So, you know, I, I'm over here and I'm like, hmm. It's fake news. Trump being indicted to me, to me, 
Trump being indicted is fake news until we actually have the paperwork, until we actually have the receipts. Um, I'm willing to believe that he's been indicted, and I'm willing to believe that these reports of what the charges are are true. They probably are. It's they they probably are fairly accurate what what's being reported right now, but it's still it's still unsubstantiated. There's no receipt for any of these claims. It's just sources say and people familiar with the matter communicating and seeding these stories. Um, if I had to bet on it, I would bet that Trump and some of his lawyers have been indicted. That's what I would bet. But I would bet his lawyers have received possibly more charges than him because Trump didn't actually physically like do things. He didn't pack the boxes. He didn't run around hiding documents. He didn't do the search himself for documents. He didn't sign off on paperwork, um, swearing out or attesting to the fact that he had searched and given over all the documents they had. Um, those were all, that's all his lawyers. His lawyers did all that stuff. And then also the, uh, what is it? The GCA or GSA or whatever it is, uh, that, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson worked at. That's who packed up all those boxes and moved them. Trump didn't pack up the boxes and move them. So, I'm waiting on a receipt. I'm waiting I'm waiting on the paperwork. And when we get the paperwork, when we get whatever the indictment is, which maybe we'll get it next Tuesday, um maybe it'll be on his birthday. There's a there's a there's really a chance that Trump is indicted on his birthday next Wednesday. Um which is crazy. But it could be. It, that could happen. Either anyway, um my plan as with other really important indictments, when the Trump indictment hits or whoever it is that's indicted by Jack Smith, whoever Jack Smith indicts, we will, as soon as those are made public, I'll make sure and do a show where we read those, go over them, examine it. And um, yeah, that's what we'll do. I'm not worried about it. I am so comfy. I hope you guys are too. Um, I don't expect Trump, like I never expected Trump to be indicted by anybody. Um, I don't believe that he's a criminal or has done anything wrong. Although I do see how a case could be made that he obstructed, but in order for him to obstruct, there would actually have to be a crime that he was like obstructing an investigation into. Um, I don't think he had, he committed a crime, but I, I do think that, um, Trump, Trump didn't make it easy for them to get these documents. Right. And I, I think that's on purpose. I think he purposefully drug it out and made it difficult for DOJ and NARA to get these documents from him because he wanted this fight. I think he wanted um, this entire this entire battle. I think Trump wants this. I think he's uh, I think there's there's a design to it. And he wanted the raid. I believe he knew about the, the raid way beforehand. Remember, he's the one who announced to the world that he was raided, right? And someone in my Telegram chat yesterday, um, what's it? I can't, I can't remember who it was. They um, they reminded me of that, and they said that it's kind of the same thing here. Trump is the one who's tell who announced to the world that he had been died. There were rumors floating around, but Trump's the one who actually announced that he had received this letter. Um. I'm going to make sure I give credit for that thought. 
I want to grab it. Where did I start it? Just a moment. I'm kind of upset with myself because I gave credit for something to the wrong person a couple times, and now I'm going to have to correct it. So I'm being very careful to get this one right. It was Maggie. That's right. It was Maggie. He was like, you know, this kind of has that same Mar-a-Lago feel where Trump is the one who's announcing it. Um, ah, what did I, what did I just do? So anyway, when we get the indictment, when we, when we get it, we'll, uh, we'll go over it and, um, yeah, that, that's my plan with that. Okay. I think I've got my bearings. There's so much, man, guys, I gotta tell you, I'm gonna be really honest with you. I am, I am pretty burned out. And I think a lot of people are. Um, I, well, I don't think, I know. I know a lot of people are burned out. A lot of us content creators, researchers and whatnot are pretty burned out right now because the news cycle has been just so intense. And uh, I'm really looking forward to and needing to take a really hard break this weekend and then come back next week refreshed. Um, so I don't know how many of you are feeling and y'all are feeling that way. I got to imagine that probably the majority of us who pay attention to this stuff every, every week are feeling that way, are feeling pretty burned out, but it's just tumultuous. There's just, there's just so much going on. Um, so if you are feeling that way, then I suggest taking this weekend to get whatever rest and restoration you can. Cause I don't, I don't think this summer I don't think this summer is going to slow down. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think, um, I, I just, I think things are just going to keep continuously accelerating. So if you can get a break in, it's a good idea. All right. I believe we are on page 255. I believe we are right here. Page 255 Sussman's meeting with the FBI. Um, I do remember reading about this tour in Spectrum Health. So I got that. Yeah, I remember reading that paragraph. So this is where we are. Sussman going to the FBI. So welcome. This is the Durham Report Part 9. My goal today is to try and finish it. Um, today, we'll read the rest of this. And uh, yeah. Yeah, Tanner. Uh, Burning Bright and I will do a Defected this Sunday night. Yep, for sure. We've already been talking about topics. Uh this week we're talking yesterday about uh what we're planning some things out for this weekend all right page 255 of the actual report right here if you're opening the same pdf i am from justice.gov you can type in 265 at the top and it'll take you to 255 of the report assessments meeting with the fbi <laughs> yeah i know johnny <laughs> topics i know the night before he met with baker sussman sent the following text message to baker's personal cell phone jim it's michael sussman i have something time sensitive and sensitive 
I need to discuss. Do you have availability for a short meeting tomorrow? I'm coming on my own, not on behalf of a client or company. Want to help the Bureau. Thanks. Baker responded, Okay, I will find a time. What might work for you? To which Sussman replied, Any time but lunchtime. You name it. The next day, Sussman met with Baker at FBI headquarters. According to Baker, the meeting occurred in Baker's office and lasted approximately 30 minutes. No one else was present. Baker explained that Sussman said during the meeting that he had information regarding a, quote, surreptitious communications channel between Alpha Bank and the Trump organization, and that he stated, quote, I'm not here on behalf of any particular client. Baker said that he was 100% confident that Sussman made this statement during the meeting. Because Baker considered Sussman a friend and a colleague, Baker believed that the statement was truthful. Baker also stated that Sussman provided him with thumb drives containing data and white papers that explained the covert channel. Baker also noted that Sussman said the major news organizations were aware of the Alpha Bank allegations and were intent on publishing about the issue relatively soon. As a result, Baker considered this to be an urgent matter because if any news organization were to publish the allegations, any secret communications channel would likely disappear. Guys, this is an important consideration here. Sussman mentioned that to Baker on purpose, I believe, in order to get him to rush this and to make it an urgent matter so that they could get ahead of any news organization, right? And Sussman knew that that is what would happen, which is why Sussman set that up. Sussman set up, Sussman and, and the team, the conspiracy, they set up the media angle to use that as a, you know, like a, a threat, like it's a, not that he's threatened Baker with it, but like this outside force that the FBI needs to get ahead of. Total setup. Thus, soon as he met with Sussman, Baker spoke with Assistant Director for Counterintelligence Priestap and Deputy General Counsel Anderson, who handled counterintelligence and cyber matters. Baker believed that Priestap and Anderson needed to be aware of the allegations because they involved a Russian bank purportedly making an effort to communicate with the Trump organization. This seemed to Baker on its face to be a potential national security threat. Baker relayed to Priestap and Anderson the details of his meeting, including Sussman's specific representation that he was not there on behalf of any client and a general explanation of the Alpha Bank allegations. Both Priestap and Anderson took contemporaneous notes. Priestap wrote in his FBI notebook that Sussman, quote, said not doing this for any client. So that is huge right there that he took that note and it backs up what Baker said was verbally communicated. And then you also have the, te the text message. That's three points that that's how he presented it. Um, these notes are near impossible to read, but I can kind of make them out. I'm not going to struggle here with you, but there are some notes right here. I'm not going to read. Um, similarly, Anderson took the following notes, which stated in part, quote, no specific client, but group of cyber academics talked with him about research. Now, that'd be jo Joffe's guys. Despite their notes, neither Priestap nor Anderson remembered receiving this information from Baker. Baker also recalled that he briefed both Director Comey and Deputy, Andrew, Deputy Director Andrew McCabe about the Alpha Bank allegations. 
All right, I'm going to point something out here. Baker went to Priestap and Anderson, and he went to McCabe, and he went to Comey about this. Of all those people, this guy right here, Director Comey, he was already aware from a month previous of the memo stating that um, the CIA of the memo that they got or the referral they got from the CIA stating that Hillary Clinton had a plan to frame Donald Trump and to distract from her own email server problems. So Comey at this point has just been, has just been given information about this alpha bank Trump alpha bank server, Trump server thing. And you got to know, you got to know that Comey's like, aha, here's what that referral was about, right? Here's a plan. Here's Hillary. Clinton. I, I think he knew at this moment. Um, McCabe was not aware of that. I don't, or at least we don't have any information that McCabe was aware of that referral. Uh, but Comey and Strzok were, and which is another reason why I think that they might be, uh, we may not have their role in this, ex um, accurately sussed out. All right. The FBI's alpha bank investigation following his meeting with Sussman and briefings of FBI leadership. Baker recalled that he gave either pre-stap or struck the white papers and thumb drives from Sussman. So he might, he might've given them directly to struck, but he might give them the pre-stap and then pre-stap gives them to struck. The materials then made their way to the cyber division at trial. An FBI cyber agent who is cyber agent one testified that the agent and his supervisor, cyber agent two were tasked to take custody of the alpha bank materials and to obtain signatures for the accompanying chain of custody form. A review of that form showed that Baker relinquished custody of the materials to Strzok, who then provided the materials to Eric Spohr, the deputy assistant director of the cyber division. According to the form, Spohr, th or it could be Spory, but I'm going to say Spohr, thereafter transferred custody to Cyber Agent 2. Cyber Agent 1 testified that he was able to get signatures from Baker and Spohr for the form, but Strzok was unavailable and someone else obtained his signature. Let me look at this footnote. It's 1466. Okay. At this meeting with Baker, Sussman provided three white papers to the FBI. Sussman, Joffe, and possibly others drafted the first paper. And list some exhibit numbers. The investigation determined that University Researcher 2 drafted the second paper. Fusion GPS drafted the third. Dude, that right there proves. That proves Sussman's lie. That he wasn't there on behalf of any client when he shows up with a paper drafted by Fusion GPS. Who was a client. Of his client. Yeah. Idiots. The Cyber Division's review of the Alpha Bank allegations. Following the receipt of the materials, Cyber Agent 2 tasked Cyber Agent 1 to review the data provided on the thumb drives, along with the white papers, and identify whether there were any cyber equities, such as an allegation of hacking. Cyber Agent 2 also asked Cyber Agent 1 to review the data and compare it to the white paper and provide an assessment as to whether the data supported the white paper's findings. The white paper 
that Cyber Agent One reviewed, titled White Paper One Audible, Auditable B3, contained an initial section titled Findings. That section stated, quote, The Trump Organization is using a very unusually configured secret email server in Pennsylvania for current and ongoing email communications with Alpha Bank in Moscow and with Alpha Bank through another unusually configured server, a Tor exit node, X Spectrum Health in Michigan. These servers are configured for direct communications between the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank to the exclusion of all other systems. The only plausible explanation for this server configuration is that it shows the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank to be using multiple sophisticated layers of protection in order to obfuscate their considerable recent email traffic. The white paper further stated that the secret email server domain was mail1.trumpemail.com and was hosted by a Pennsylvania-based company, ListTrack, which is reasonably well-known CRM. Customer Relation Management Company. This company that provides large-scale distribution of marketing emails, usually sending emails to thousands of recipients hundreds of times a day. Within a day of receiving the Alpha Bank material, CyberAgent 1 and CyberAgent 2 drafted a report of their analysis. The report's summary stated that they had assessed there is no cyber division equity. Yeah, there is no cyber division equity in this report and that the research conducted in the report reveals some questionable investigative steps taken and conclusions drawn. Polite way of saying, eh, we got some problems here. The report acknowledged that there was no allegation of hacking and so there was no reason for the cyber division to investigate further. The report also said that, quote, it appears abnormal that a presidential candidate who wanted to conduct secret correspondence with the Russian government or a Russian bank would one, name his secret server mail1.trumpemail.com, two, use a domain, trump trumpemail.com, register to his own organization, and then three, communicate directly to the Russian bank's IP address as opposed to using Tor or proxy servers. In other words, an idiot set this up. Cyber Agent 1 testified that both he and Cyber Agent 2 did not agree with the conclusion in the white paper and assessed that one, the authors of the white paper, quote, jumped to some conclusions that were not supported by the technical data. Two, the methodology was questionable. And three, the conclusions drawn did not, quote, ring true at all. In interviews with the office, both Cyber Agent 1 and Cyber Agent 2 said they were proud of their work because they had both come to the same conclusion despite their own very different political views. The opening of the FBI's investigation. After the Cyber Division's review, FBI leadership referred the matter to a squad in the Chicago field office responsible for the investigating Eurasian counterintelligence and cyber matters. The investigation was referred to a Chicago field office agent, Chicago Agent 1 who had worked on both the FBI's mid-year examination investigation, the, which was the investigation related to Hillary Clinton's email server, and Crossfire Hurricane. Chicago Agent 1 was joined by a new FBI agent, Chicago Agent 2. Chicago Agent 2 was Chicago Agent 1's trainee and was the co-case agent and primary lead for the Alpha Bank investigation. Chicago Agent 1 and Chicago Agent 2 opened a full investigation, quote, into the network or communications, between a U.S.-based server and the Russian Alpha Bank organization. A full investigation, as described above in Section 3b2, 
may be opened if there is, quote, an articulable factual basis for the investigation that reasonably indicates that an activity constituting a federal crime or threat to national security may be occurring. According to the case agents and other records obtained during the investigation, it was FBI leadership who decided to open a full investigation. Indeed, two days after the meeting between Baker and Sussman, Supervisory Special Agent 1, the Crossfire Hurricane Supervisor, reached out to Chicago Agent 1. Supervisory Special Agent 1 told Chicago Agent 1 that, quote, people on the seventh floor, to include director, are fired up about this server. Supervisory Special Agent 1 further stated that if the investigation had not been opened, he would have reached out to Chicago Agent 1's supervisor because, quote, Prestap says it's not an option. We must do it. Chicago Agent 1 responded that the case team was, quote, opening a counterintelligence case today. Still, the team was already skeptical of the allegations. Chicago Agent 1 noted that the team was, quote, leaning towards this being a false server not attributed to the Trump organization, but that they would run it down. Chicago Agent 1 and Chicago Agent 2 memorialized the opening of the investigation in an electronic communication, an EC. Chicago Agent 1 and Chicago Agent 2 later acknowledged that there were certain errors in this document. Of most importance to the office, meaning the special counsel's office, was the representation made as to the source of the white papers. The EC stated that, quote, the Justice Department or the Department of Justice provided the FBI with a white paper that was produced by an anonymous third party. According to both Chicago Agent 1 and Chicago Agent 2, this representation was an error, and both recalled that they understood the allegations were presented to the FBI's general counsel by an anonymous source. So just to make that perfectly clear, the EC that opened the investigation into this Trump server, AlphaBank server thing, said the white paper came from DOJ to the FBI, but that's not true. It came from Sussman to Baker, the FBI's general counsel, and then went to um, the FBI, or to the investigators in the FBI. Okay. Yeah, it's looking good. The close hold on Sussman's identity. In evaluating the FBI's early actions related to the Alpha Bank investigation, one issue that the F- that the office identified was the decision by the FBI to put a close hold on Sussman's identity as the source of the allegations and to prevent its disclosure to the Alpha Bank case team. A close hold is when the FBI's leadership protects specific information such as the identity of a source and prevents the field or investigative team from learning that information. The investigation revealed that multiple members of the Alpha Bank case team were frustrated and concerned that they were prevented from interviewing the source of the allegations. Accordingly, the FBI attempted to determine whether Baker or other senior FBI officials may have protected Sussman's identity improperly to to further the Alpha Bank allegations against Trump for political reasons or to mask Sussman's ties to the DNC and the Clinton campaign. During Baker's testimony at the Sussman trial, And although not remembering having done so, Baker speculated that he may have attempted to protect Sussman's identity and limited disclosure to only a few senior FBI executives. 
According to Baker, if he did so, it was because he considered Sussman to be a source who, quote, had in their possession very sensitive information that he was willing to give to the FBI. But again, Baker testified he did not recall whether he had refused to provide this to any specific FBI personnel or who he would have instructed to put a close hold in place. Cyber Agent 1 testified that when he was obtaining Baker's signature on the chain of custody, he could not, quote, distinctly recall whether the conversation was, but that he was frustrated that Baker did not tell him who had provided the thumb drives. Cyber Agent 2 told the office that he and Cyber Agent 1 considered filing a whistleblower claim about Baker's failure to provide the information, but ultimately decided that they would not because the data provided was was not formal evidence in a criminal proceeding. The FBI headquarters program manager for the Alpha Bank case team, who we're going to call HQ Supervisory Special Agent 3, noted that the FBI leadership, including Strzok, instructed him not to identify the source to the team. Headquarters Supervisory Special Agent 3 further explained that he believed that the investigative team did not need to interview the source as a first step, and instead should focus on the data and log files to make a determination as to the validity of the allegations. The office's investigation showed that the Alpha Bank investigative team made multiple requests to learn the identity of the source of the Alpha Bank allegations. Approximately a week after the FBI received Alpha Bank allegations, Chicago Agent 1 sent Supervisory Special Agent 1 a message requesting that the investigative team interview the source of the white paper. Approximately a week later, Chicago Agent 1 and his supervisor again made requests to FBI leadership to interview the source of the allegations. As Chicago Agent 1 explained, this was important to the case team because the investigation had found that the allegations were unsubstantiated, and the team wanted to confirm their findings. Ultimately, the case team never learned that Sussman was the source of the allegations, nor that he was connected in any way to the DNC and the Clinton campaign. The FBI's investigation ultimately concluded that it was unable to substantiate any of the allegations in the white paper that Sussman provided to Baker. FBI Chicago assesses Alpha Bank and Trump organization-related servers almost certainly did not communicate intentionally or covertly, covertly, based on the results of an internal examination of the Alpha Bank servers by Redacted and subsequent preventative steps employed by the companies. FBI Chicago has high confidence in this assessment, which is based on a highly reliable, sensitive source with excellent access and corroborates FBI investigative activity conducted to date. In coming to that conclusion, the investigators took a number of steps. First, they conducted open source research in the mail1.trumpemail.com domain that was identified in the white paper. They learned that the domain was registered to a company called Central Dynamics, or Sendine, and that the server was housed at a company named Listrack, located in Pennsylvania. As a result, the FBI reached out to both Sendin and Listrack to request data and log files from each company and to conduct interviews as well. Both Sendin and Listrack were compliant with these requests and provided log files and data that was analyzed by FBI analysts on the investigative team. Ultimately, the data and files provided nothing to substantiate the Alpha Bank allegations. In addition, the FBI reached out to Mandiant, a cybersecurity firm 
that was hired by Alpha Bank to conduct an, an internal investigation and forensic analysis into the allegations. Mandiant provided the FBI with its findings, which too included that there was no evidence to support the allegations of a secret communications channel or any evidence of a direct communication between Alpha Bank servers and Trump organization servers. Mandiant was just in the news. Aren't they the guys that uh, alerted Microsoft to the uh, hacks in Guam of uh, DOD equipment that we talked about in Power Hour with John like three weeks ago, two weeks ago? I'm not sure. Everything's running together. I'm pretty sure Mandiant is the, they were in that news story that had to do with Guam and Chinese cyber hacking. In early 20, in early October 2016, an agent detailed to the National Computer Forensics and Training Alliance, Cyber Agent 3, contacted the cyber division at FBI headquarters because he had received two IP addresses from an anonymous source who had requested that the information be provided to the FBI. According to Cyber Agent 3, the anonymous source told him that the information related to a New York Times story involving an upcoming election. Cyber Agent 3 was then put in contact with Chicago Agent 2. Cyber Agent 3 recalled that Chicago Agent 2 was dismissive of the information, and Cyber Agent 3 interpreted Chicago Agent 2's response as if the investigative team was already aware of the information. Chicago Agent 2 explained that the case team performed open source checks on these two IP addresses that resulted in identifying one IP address associated with AlphaBank and one IP address associated with a home address in Moscow. <coughs> the office's investigation revealed that the anonymous source who provided the two IP addresses to Cyber Agent 3 was in fact Joffe. The most likely reason Joffe decided to provide the two IP addresses to the FBI via Cyber Agent 3 anonymously was to create the appearance of corroboration. Yes, sir. One plausible theory that the office considered was that Joffe and others were attempting to promote the AlphaBank allegations in such a way that the allegations appeared to be from multiple independent sources. Yep. Indeed, at this time, Joffe himself was an FBI CHS. But in this instance, Joffe decided to provide the Alpha Bank allegations and the two IP addresses to Cyber Agent 3 instead of his handler with instructions to keep his identity protected. Joffe's unwillingness to voluntarily meet with our investigators left unanswered his actual motive for, for providing some information to the FBI through Sussman and two IP addresses through Cyber Agent 3, and in both instances to remain anonymous. Finally, the Alpha Bank investigators also received information in early October 2016 from a separate CHS regarding the Alpha Bank allegations. Chicago Agent 2 explained that according to the handler, ah, excuse me, that according to the handler, the CHS had access to the white paper and had made an initial assessment that the allegations were credible, but that the data appeared incomplete. The CHS also explained that he or she had been contacted by University One Researcher 2, one of the white paper authors. In the correspondence from Chicago Agent 2, there is an indication that the FBI was interested in speaking with University One Researcher 2. However, that meeting never occurred. That footnote. It is notable 
that in November 2016, soon after the presidential election, Joffe emailed a colleague stating, I was temporarily offered a top cybersecurity job by the Democrats if they win. Yeah. Okay. In January 2017, the FBI closed the Alpha Bank investigation. Ultimately, the FBI was unable to substantiate any of the allegations in the white paper. Actions by Fusion GPS promote Alpha Bank allegations. The special counsel's investigation also uncovered numerous communications in which Fusion GPS leadership and other personnel sought to discuss, advance, and disseminate the Alpha Bank allegations. As noted, in April 2016, Perkins Coie engaged Fusion GPS in connection with the 2016 election. As part of Fusion GPS's work on behalf of Perkins Coie and the Clinton campaign, it collected, organized, and promoted opposition research on Trump's ties to Russia. Perhaps most notably, as described in Section 4D1B, Fusion GPS detained, or no, retained Steele, who compi- compiled the information and reports that became known as the Steele dossier. Fusion GPS also drafted one of the white papers that Sussman provided to Baker at their September 19th, 2016 meeting. That white paper provided an overview of the parent company of Alpha Bank and described ties to Russian government officials and certain U.S. persons and entities. Footnote, the office has not seen evidence that Fusion was involved in originating the Alpha Bank data or were aware of its origination, but rather only promoted the allegations. Following Sussman's promotion of the Alpha Bank allegations to the FBI, Fusion GPS continued to promote these allegations to various media personnel. For instance, on October 18, 2016, two weeks before news stories would appear about the Alpha Bank allegations, Mark Hosenball of Reuters emailed Fusion GPS co-founder Peter Fritsch, stating in part, quote, anything new, Rusky, Donald Wise, to, to which, or Ruski, Donald Wise, to which Fritch responded, quote, to the expletive Alpha Bank secret comm story. It's hugely important. Forget the WikiLeaks sideshow. The reporter replied that the issue with the story was the inability of his cyber expert colleagues to confirm that some of the important data was authentic. Later on in that day, Fritch replied, it's everyone's problem. Call University One Researcher 2 at Georgia Tech. <laughs> Call the guy who made up that bullshit for us and see what he says. <laughs> All right. Footnote. The email said, the problem with the Alpha Bank story at this point is that my cyber expert colleagues cannot satisfy themselves about the authenticity of some of the key data, which they say, from what they can tell, is not public data. We are in contact with your experts via different channels, but my colleague in Silicon Valley still hasn't gotten the confidence he says he needs to understand where all the data originated. And if you can help more with this, please do. On October 22nd, 2016, Franklin Fower, a reporter for Slate Magazine, emailed University One Researcher 2 at his University One email address asking for assistance on the Alpha Bank Trump story. A few days later, Fritch forwarded to Foyer a tweet stating that the U.S. Senate Majority Leader had, quote, talked with top national security officials who say that the FBI director possesses explosive information about Trump's ties to Russia. 
Fritch's email stated, time to hurry. Foer replied, here's the first 250 words. And included at the email, in the email, a partial draft of an article about AlphaBank and Trump on which Foer was working for Fritch's review. The reporter published an article shortly thereafter. On October 31st, 2016, media outlets published articles regarding the Alpha Bank allegations and the existence of an FBI investigation. As previously noted, within hours of these articles, the Clinton campaign issued tweets and public statements concerning the purported existence of a secret communications channel involving the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank. Actions by the Clinton campaign to promote Alpha Bank allegations. On October 31st, 2016, about one week before the election, multiple media outlets reported that the FBI had received and was investigating the allegations concerning a purported secret channel between Trump Organization and Alpha Bank. For example, Slate published an article that discussed at length the allegations that Sussman provided to the FBI. Also on that day, the New York Times published an article titled Investigating Donald Trump, FBI Sees No Clear Link to Russia. The article discussed information in possession of FBI about, quote, what cyber experts said appeared to be a mysterious computer back channel between the Trump Organization and AlphaBank. The article further reported that the FBI had, quote, spent weeks examining computer data showing an odd stream of activity to a Trump Organization server, and that the newspaper had been provided computer logs that evidenced this activity. The article also noted that at the time of the article, the FBI had not found, quote, any conclusive or direct link between Trump and the Russian government and that Hillary's Clinton supporters pushed for these investigations. It's crazy that the New York Times published that, guys. It's um, footnote 1531. Eric Lichtblow and Stephen Lee Myers. That The headline of that article alone is devastating to the op that Hillary Clinton was trying to run on that very day. The article discussed information, blah, 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 1533. Okay. As noted above, in the months prior to the publication of these articles, Sussman had communicated with the media and provided them with Alpha Bank data and allegations. Sussman also kept Elias apprised of his efforts. Elias, in turn, communicated with the Clinton campaign's leadership about potential media coverage of these issues. For example, emails reflected on September 1st, 2016, Sussman met with the reporter who published the New York Times article, Eric Lichtblow. Sussman billed his time for the meeting to the Clinton campaign under the broader billing description, quote, confidential meetings regarding confidential project. Emails further reflect that on September 12th, 2016, just one week prior to Sussman's meeting with Baker, Sussman and Elias communicated about Sussman's efforts to share the Alpha Bank allegations with the New York Times. In addition, on September 15th, 2016, Elias provided an update to the Clinton campaign regarding the Alpha Bank allegations and the not yet published New York Times article, sending an email to Jake Sullivan, Robbie Mook, John Podesta, and Jennifer Palmieri, which he billed to the Clinton campaign as, quote, email correspondence with Sullivan, Mook, Podesta, Palmieri, re-Alpha Bank article. On the same day, that these articles were published. The Clinton campaign posted a tweet through Hillary Clinton's Twitter account, which stated, quote, computer scientists have apparently uncovered a covert server linking the Trump organization to a Russian-based bank. 
The tweet included a statement from Clinton campaign advisor Jake Sullivan, which made reference to the media coverage article and stated in relevant part that the allegations in the article, excuse me, allegations in the article, quote, could be the most direct link yet between Donald Trump and Moscow, and that this secret hotline may be the key to unlocking the mystery of Trump's ties to Russia, and that we can only assume that federal authorities will now explore this direct connection between Trump and Russia as part of their existing probe into Russia's meddling in our elections. During the Sussman trial, both Elias and Mook said that the Hillary for America campaign, HFA campaign, did not authorize Sussman to take the Alpha Bank allegations to the FBI. According to Elias and Mook, the campaign did not trust the FBI due to Comey's announcement related to the FBI's mid-year exam investigation regarding Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server during her time as Secretary of State. Just really want people to understand that. The Clinton campaign, her lawyers, her entire team did not trust the FBI because of Comey and his announcement related to Hillary Clinton's private email. Why would they not trust him? Well, because he took it away from Loretta Lynch who Hillary Clinton already had a deal with who was going to bury it for her and make sure it didn't go too far. But Comey made sure to handle it in such a way that he could reopen the case. And he did 11 days before the election torpedoing her campaign. This right here is more evidence. Comey was never on Team Hillary or Team Clinton. It's McCabe. It's Andy McCabe who was on Team Hillary. And tr- and he tried to make as much, he tries to blame shift to Comey as much as possible in order to take the heat off of himself. You don't have to believe me, just believe Elias and Mook. <laughs> Mook also explained that top Clinton campaign officials were aware of the Alpha Bank allegations and favored providing the allegations to the media. Mook likewise noted that he had discussed the allegations with Clinton, who approved the dissemination of them to the media. Mook testified that the campaign did so before questions and potential doubts about the accuracy and reliability of the allegations had been resolved and without knowing the exact origins of the data. Although the campaign could not substantiate the allegations, they stated that they considered them, quote, concerning and wanted the media to vet the allegations because of the concerns about Trump's association with Russia. Sullivan and Elias raised Trump's July 2016, quote, Russia, if you're listening, statement, as one reason for the Clinton campaign's concern about Trump's ties to Russia. The office also gathered information related to a post-election meeting that Sussman had with the CIA. On February 9th, 2017, Sussman, in an absolute fit of desperateness, <laughs> Sussman provided an updated set of allegations, including the Alpha Bank data and additional allegations relating to Trump to the CIA. The office examined Sussman's interactions with various CIA employees, including how he was able to secure a meeting with the CIA 
and what occurred during that meeting and what materials he provided to the CIA. I wonder, this is going to be interesting, but do note that this is February 9th, 2017. The Alpha Bank allegations haven't gone anywhere. It hasn't resulted in what Sussman was hoping for. Hillary didn't win the election. It's over. That guy is in the White House. Comey is still FBI director and Sussman is pooping his pants. So he decides I got to do something. And he goes to the CIA with the same material plus a little bit more. The investigation revealed that in December, 2016 Sussman reached out to the CIA general counsel and requested a meeting related to allegations against Trump. The general counsel did not take the meeting and suggested to Sussman that he provide the allegations to the FBI. Isn't that rich? Isn't that rich? Sussman, however, ignored that suggestion and continued to pursue a meeting. On or about January 31st, 2017, Sussman met with a retired CIA employee, retired CIA employee one. During the meeting, Sussman told retired CIA employee one that he had a client who wanted to provide information to the CIA about Trump. Sussman explained that his client, quote, is an engineer with a number of patents and was unsure whether his client would reveal his identity to the CIA. Sussman further noted that his client did not want to provide this information to the FBI because the client did not trust the FBI and did not believe that the FBI had requisite resources to deal with the allegations. Retired CIA employee one also recalled Sussman's statement that should the CIA not investigate, not investigate the allegations, he would provide them to the New York Times. Following the meeting, retired CIA employee one drafted a memorandum describing the meeting and sent it to active CIA officers who then scheduled the meeting with Sussman for early February, 2017. In the next meeting, Sussman made a substantially similar statement to the one he had made to Baker regarding the source of the allegations. In particular, Sussman asserted that he was not representing a particular client in conveying the above allegations. Sussman, however, was in fact continuing to represent at least Joffe, a matter Sussman subsequently acknowledged under oath in December 2017 testimony before Congress without identifying the client by name. Sussman provided a similar set of allegations to the CIA that he had previously provided to the FBI. Specifically, Sussman provided the CIA with an updated version of the Alpha Bank allegations and a new set of allegations that supposedly demonstrated that Trump or his associates were using in the vicinity of the White House and other locations one or more telephones from the Russian mobile telephone provider Yodafone. The office's investigation revealed that these additional allegations relied in part on the DNS traffic that Joffe and others had assembled pertaining to Trump Tower. Trump's New York City apartment building and the Executive Office of the President, and Spectrum Health. That footnote, yeah. Sussman provided the data to the CIA that he said reflected suspicious DNS lookups by these entities of domains affiliated with Yodafone. Sussman further stated that these lookups demonstrated that Trump or his associates were using a Yodafone in the vicinity of the White House and other locations. The FBI DNS experts with whom he worked as also identified certain data and information that cast doubt upon several assertions, inferences, and allegations contained in the above quoted white papers about the Yodafone allegations 
and two, the presentation and Yodafone-related materials that Sussman provided to the CIA in 2017. In particular, data files obtained from Tech Company 1, or no, Tech Company 2, a cybersecurity research company. As part of the office's investigation reflect DNS queries run by Tech Company 2 personnel in 2016-2017 or later reflect that Yodafone lookups were far from rare in the United States and were not unique to or disproportionately prevalent on Trump-related networks, particularly within the data produced by Tech Company 2. Queries from the United States IP addresses accounted for approximately 46% of all Yoda.ru queries. Queries from Russia accounted for 20%, and queries from Trump-associated IP addresses accounted for less than 0.01%. Data files obtained from Tech Company 1, Tech Company 2, and University 1 reflect that Yodafone-related lookups involving IP addresses assigned to the Executive Office of the President began long before November or December 2016 and therefore seriously undermined the inference set forth in the white paper that such lookups likely reflect the presence of a Trump transition team member who was using a Yodafone in the executive office of the president. In particular, this data reflects that approximately 371 such lookups involving Yodafone domains and EOP IP addresses occurred prior to the 2016 election. And in at least one instance, as early as October 24th, 2014. Two CIA employees, CIA employee two and three, prepared a memorandum summarizing the meeting they had with Sussman in February 2017. The final version included Sussman's representation that he was not representing any particular client. In their interviews with the office, both CIA employees specifically recalled Sussman stating he was not representing a particular client. During the meeting, Sussman provided two thumb drives and four paper documents that, according to Sussman, supported the allegations. The CIA analyzed the allegations and data that Sussman provided and prepared a report to reflect its findings. The report explained that the analysis was done to examine whether the materials provided demonstrated technical plausibility of the following. Quote, do linkages exist to any Russian foreign intelligence service? Do linkages exist to AlphaBank? Are the provided documents data based upon open source tools or activity? Is the provided information of data or, and data technically conceivable? The CIA ultimately concluded that the materials that Sussman provided were neither, quote, technically plausible, nor did they, quote, withstand technical scrutiny. And further, none of the materials showed any linkages between the Trump campaign, Trump Org, or any Russian Foreign Intelligence Service or Alpha Bank. The report also noted that one of the thumb drives contained hidden data, which included Tech Company 2 Executive 1's name and email address. <laughs> All right, what's this big footnote? Goes to 1563. All right, this is the two CIA employees memorandum on the meeting. It says, complete resolution of these issues is difficult. The office's investigation determined that Sussman's billing practices were irregular. For example, prior to the 2016 election, Sussman billed all Alpha Bank-related work to the Clinton campaign. Following the election, Sussman appears to have retroactively billed some of his time for the Alpha Bank work related, uh, Alpha Bank-related work to Jaffe. The office did not 
receive a satisfactory explanation from Perkins Coie for this practice. Sussman also engaged in questionable client record keeping. For example, and for reasons unknown, Sussman's client retention letter to Tech Company 2 Executive 1 was addressed to a Miss Tina Wells within the address of 1200 Pennsylvania Avenue in D.C. Sussman's letter, memorializing his joint representation of Joffe and Tech Company 2 Executive 1, was addressed to Miss Tina Wells and Mr. Bob Hale. Representation letters from Perkins Coie, blah, blah, blah. These fake names are apparent references to the actors who played Marianne and Skipper on the television series Gilligan's Island, though Marianne was actually played by Don Wells and the Skipper was played by Alan Hale. The address provided for Miss Wells, Tech Company 2 Executive 1, is 1200 Pennsylvania Avenue, which is the William Jefferson Clinton EPA headquarters, and which has no apparent connection to Tech Company 2 Executive 1. The use of false names would appear to prevent a law firm from, among other things, conducting proper conflicts checks. The titles of the four documents were, one, Network Analysis of Yodafone-Related Subjects, Network ONIT, Trump Communications Network. Okay, that's not all that interesting right there. Okay. Okay. According to Sussman's conduct, no, accordingly, Sussman's conduct supports the inference that his representations to both the FBI and the CIA that he was not there on behalf of a client reflects attempts to conceal the role of certain clients, namely the Clinton campaign and Joffe, in Sussman's work. Such evidence also further supports the inference that Sussman's false statements to two different agencies were not a mistake or misunderstanding, but rather a deliberate effort to conceal the involvement of specific clients in his delivery of data and documents to the FBI and CIA. All right, Sussman's congressional testimony. On December 18, 2017, Sussman testified under oath before the HPSCI and addressed his role in providing the Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations to the FBI and CIA. During the proceedings, the following exchange in part occurred. Question. Okay, did you have any other meetings with any other administration officials regarding the information you conveyed to the FBI and the CIA? Was there anyone else you contacted that worked for the federal government? Assessment, not that I recall. Question. Okay, so those are the only two. Now I want to ask you, what was the information about? Assessment. The information was about communications or potential communications between persons unknown in Russia and persons unknown associated with the Trump organization. Question. Information that was given to you by a client? Sussman, yes. Question. So that information was not given to you by any other source but the client you represented? Sussman, absolutely. Question. No, that's fair. So let me ask you this question. When you decided to engage the two principals, one, Mr. Baker in September, and General Counsel of CIA in December, you were doing that on your own volition, based on information another client provided you. Is that correct? No. So that was, so did your client direct you to have those conversations? Yes. 
Okay. And your client was also witting of you going to in, in February to disclose the information that individual had provided to you. Yes. Back to the FBI. You obviously had a conversation or you had a meeting with the FBI with Mr. Baker. Was there anybody else in the room from the FBI? Uh, anybody there in that room with you? No. Okay. I want to ask you. So you mentioned that your client directed you to have these engagements with the FBI and, and to disseminate the information the client had provided to you. Is that correct? Sussman. Well, I apologize for the double negative. It isn't not correct. But when you say my client directed me, we had a conversation as lawyers do with their clients about client needs and objectives and the best course to take for a client. And so it may have been a decision that we came to together. I mean, I don't want to imply that I was sort of directed to do something against my better judgment or that we were in any sort of conflict, but this was, I think it's most accurate to say it was done on behalf of my client. Sussman's congressional testimony concealed and obscured the origins and political nature of his work on the Alpha Bank allegations. Moreover, Sussman's testimony was also misleading in that it conveyed the impression to Congress that Sussman's only client for the Alpha Bank allegations was Joffe, when in fact he was billing the work to the Clinton campaign. Indeed, during points in the testimony not quoted above, Sussman was specifically asked if Fusion GPS was his client in these matters. Sussman's answer failed to disclose or volunteer that information. In fact, had drafted one of the white papers that Sussman gave to the FBI. Sussman also failed to mention that the only client billed for Sussman's pre-election work on those allegations was the Clinton campaign. All right, Perkins Coie's statements to the media. I see some folks in chatter saying the indictment's unsealed. I'm going to stick with this. I'm not, I'm not jumping over to that. Uh, I'm going to stick with this and then, uh, yeah, I'll probably read the indictment that y'all are talking about next week on a uh, Monday or Tuesday. On October 4th, 2018, Perkins Coie stated to multiple media outlets that quote, when Sussman met with the FBI general counsel on behalf of a client, it was not connected to the firm's representation of Hillary Clinton campaign, the DNC or any political law group client. The following week, John Devaney, the managing partner of Perkins Coie, wrote to the editor of the Wall Street Journal and stated, quote, Mr. Sussman's meetings with the FBI General Counsel was on behalf of a client with no connections to either the Clinton campaign, the DNC, or any political law group client. The office interviewed Perkins Coie's leadership, including Mr. Devaney, regarding their knowledge of Sussman's promotion of the Alpha Bank allegations and his billing entries related to the Clinton campaign. Each of Perkins Coie employees denied knowing that Sussman had, in fact, billed all of his time related to the Alphabank allegations to the Clinton campaign. Sussman could have easily corrected Perkins Coie's mistaken belief that Sussman's work on the Alphabank allegations, quote, was not connected to the firm's representation of Hillary Clinton campaign, the DNC, or any political law group client. He chose not to. Providing the Alphabank and Yodafone allegations to Congress. The office identified documents relating or reflecting that in March and April 2017, during the months after Sussman provided the Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations to the CIA, the offices of at least two U.S. senators received similar materials. 
On March 22nd, 2017, Senators Jack Reed and Mark Warner wrote to Director Comey urging the FBI, quote, to conduct an investigation into reports that, quote, a server belonging to the Trump organization was purposely communicating with servers belonging to a major Russian bank and the Spectrum Health Organization in Michigan during the 2016 election. In support of its request, the letter attached an untitled white paper of unknown authorship. The paper included a summary of the Alpha Bank allegations, which was similar in substance to materials that Sussman had provided to the FBI and CIA. About a month later, Senator Reid sent a second letter to Comey about the Yodafone allegations. Like the first letter, this one attached a white paper of unknown authorship. The paper stated that a small number of Yodafones are sold globally and a very small number in the dozens presently operate in the United States. The paper noted that a group of internet technical experts had discovered a pattern of Yodafone-like activity occurring within the Trump Organization and the Spectrum Health Networks, which it correlated with Trump campaign and transition team visits to Michigan. The data also purportedly showed that Yodafone-like activity continued at the Trump Organization until December 15th, when the same activity began within the EOP, from which experts inferred that the person or persons using this device in the Trump campaign were part of the transition team that began working within the EOP. The paper concluded that, quote, given the broad concerns about the Trump campaign's connections to Russia, the existence and activity of the Yodafone, as described here, stands out as an extraordinary oddity that warrants investigation. Finally, on May 8th, a staffer to Senator Reid sent a follow-up memorandum to the FBI's Office of Congressional Affairs. The memorandum noted that the source of the analysis, quote, insists on remaining anonymous, but is represented by an attorney, and went on to say that, quote, the source is willing, through counsel, to have extensive technical discussions with the Bureau's technical staff to provide the DNS records and the analysis that has been conducted. The memorandum also noted that Senator Reid continued to request that the FBI pursue the allegations and that the source's attorney was Michael Sussman. Because, however, either the FBI or CIA or both agencies had already examined these allegations, the FBI did not take further investigative steps in response to these requests. The office did not determine how or from whom Senator Reid and Warner received the above-described emails or materials. An executive at Research Organization 1 appears to have learned about the allegations from Senator Reid's office and thereafter conducted work on these issues in coordination and consultation with Senator Reid's staff. Research Executive 1 was a former FBI analyst and Hill staffer and, fond- and founder of Research Organization 1. Research Executive 1's activities are further scri- described below. The office's investigations also identified evidence that the Clinton campaign and the DNC maintained or sought contemporaneous relationships with Tech Company One personnel and used or considered using Tech Company One products and services at around the same time as Joffe's efforts to promote the Alphabank and Yodafone allegations. The campaign and the DNC considered Tech Company One a possible source of data, including telephone data telephone metadata, and there were a number of communications regarding Tech Company One data. The office examined this information in considering whether the campaign or the DNC maintained broader relationships with Tech Company One that might have led or contributed to Joffe's Alpha Bank and Yodafone activities. 
Although the office identified multiple instances in which the campaign or the DNC maintained ties or communicated with tech company one and its employees, we did not identify evidence establishing that any such activities originated with Joffe or related to the Alpha Bank or Yodafone allegations. Joffe was not copied or addressed on these communications, and the office did not identify evidence of his awareness of these allegations or these discussions. We also are not aware of any evidence that the campaign or DNC used this data to conduct opposition research to gather information regarding an opposing candidate as opposed to voter information or otherwise target Trump or his associates. The office also considered whether any conduct related to Tech Company One data constituted an illegal campaign contribution to the Clinton campaign by Tech Company One or other related criminal statutes. The office did not identify any chargeable criminal conduct in this regard. Look at these footnotes real quick. In the course of our investigation, we also found evidence that Tech Company One or other private sector entities collected and sold certain or other types of user data, such as telephone data, geolocation data, and other kinds of user information. The scope and detail of the data raise privacy issues that may be of public interest, but that are outside the scope of this report. We expect that today most major campaigns likely buy and use these kinds of data. Uh, yeah, actually, there's a case having to do with Ron DeSantis uh, buying a bunch of data. I'm not sure it's the same data, but it's kind of similar. In addition to the above efforts to disseminate Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations to the FBI, the CIA, and Congress, the office identified other efforts to generate and disseminate research and other materials relevant to these allegations, including the post-election period. These post-election activities included, one, continued efforts by employees of Tech Company 1 and Tech Company 2, including Tech Company 2 Executive 1, to gather data and information concerning Trump, Russia, and other topics, and two, efforts by Research Executive One to conduct research and analysis through a nonprofit organization that Research Executive One created in 2017 with the assistance of former HFA Chairman John Podesta, Fusion GPS founder Glenn Simpson, and others. Continued efforts through Joffe affiliated companies. Documents and other records that the office gathered from private entities reflect that during or around the same time period as the aforementioned letters from Senator Reid and afterwards, Joffe was continuing to use Tech Company One resources and personnel to discuss research issues relating to Trump and Russia, including the Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations. For example, emails and other evidence reflect that in early 2017 and afterwards, Joffe tasked Tech Company One, exec, Employee One, to run searches over, uh, that should be searches, not searchers, to run searches over Tech Company One's DNS traffic to gather additional information concerning the Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations. In particular, according to Tech Company One, Employee One, at or around the time of Trump's inauguration, Tech Company One, Employee One have been running queries for Joffe relating to Trump, including queries concerning Alpha Bank, Yodafone, and the EOP. Joffe and Tech Company One employee one intended to continue running certain of those queries after Trump's inauguration. Soon after the inauguration, however, Tech Company One employee one and Joffe noticed that Tech Company One's access to the EOP's DNS traffic had ceased. Remember we ran when we read about them uh, finding gold in the walls the other day? 
undefected. Right there. Right there. Soon, Tech Company One, Employee One, and Joffe never learned why Tech Company One no longer had access to the EOP's DNS data. But it was clear that Tech Company Five, the contractor that handled the EOP's DNS traffic and company for which Tech Company One maintained the EOP's DNS servers, was no longer handling the executive office of the president's data. The office was unable to determine the reason such data access ceased. During the time period, Joffe also continued to direct Tech Company One, Employee One, to run Trump-related searches over Tech Company One's data and emails reflect the aforementioned end of Tech Company One's access to EOP data. For example, on February 14, 2017, five days after Sussman's meeting with the CIA, Joffe emailed Tech Company One employee one with the subject line, for obvious reasons, and stated in the email, could you please run a search going back to February 1st to this moment or later? Searching for all activity, not just R code zero, for wildcard Yoda in recursive. Thanks. That same day, Tech Company One Employee One uploaded data responsive to Joffe's request to file transfer site and email data or email Joffe, quote, February 01 through the 14th, uploaded to SFTP site. Note that these contain everything, including TLD queries. On the following day, Joffe replied, Tech Company One Employee One, looks like no, no activity on 4EOP, right? Odd. Could you redo all of Jan so we can see when it disappeared? Later that day, Tech Company One, Employee One, responded to Joffe, quote, Yeah, I only looked at a couple of hours on the first day, but I noticed the same thing. Most of the recursive traffic was from Komodo address. I think I need to look at overall EOP volumes since January 20th to see if there have been significant volume cha- changes. On February 16, 2017, Tech Company One Employee One emailed Joffe analyzing location information for three IP addresses that Tech Company One Employee One had found communicate with Yodafone IP addresses between January 6, 2017 and January 19, 2017. Tech Company One Employee One stated in part, The resolver address in the queries is the address that is dedicated to Tech Company Five and was used for EOP traffic. Only the first client address maps to EOP. There are others. IP address in Haifa, Israel, IP address Madison, Wisconsin, IP address for Amazon. The timestamps on the records are a bit confusing as well. Two queries from two different addresses for the same queue name as the exact same second in two different nodes, Chicago and Frankfurt. Maybe an error in processing, but still odd. Next, as of the approximate five months later, Tech Company One Employee One was continuing to run Trump-related searches over Tech Company One's DNS traffic. In particular, on July 18, 2018, Tech Company One email Employee One emailed Joffe, I have four jobs that look specifically for Trump data. Dude, this is all the way into July 18, 2018. Wow. In some, it appears that efforts to gather and mine data concerning Trump from Tech Company One, Newstar, from their DNS data, continued for many months after the 2016 election. 
unless that's a that can't be it. Oh my gosh, man! Twenty eighteen. They did not want to give this up. All right, two efforts by researcher one and others. The office also gathered information reflecting that soon after the 2016 election, a number of individuals with ties to the Clinton campaign or Democratic politics met, organized, and executed additional efforts through which they intended to ensure that research and dissemination of materials concerning election interference, including Trump's possible illicit ties to Russia, would continue. These efforts included continued work regarding the Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations, as described in further detail below, participants in these activities continue to provide materials to the FBI in an effort to trigger further investigations of Trump's ties to Russia. I just had a thought. I'm sorry. I have to back up just a moment. If this is not a typo, if it is true that Joffe and his employee were continuing to work on connecting Trump to Russia through mining data, from Newstar all the way until July 18th, 2018. That means the statute of limitations, the clock on it didn't got reset then. So like the statute of limitations in the conspiracy gets reset every time an act is done in furtherance of the conspiracy, whether it's a lie or anything, anything that's done in furtherance of the conspiracy resets the clock. So if Joffe and his people are still working on this in July of 2018, that means the statute of limitations on these crimes got reset then. That's seven year. I think it's supposed to be seven year limitation, but it depends on the crime. They have different SOLs depending on what crime it is. But yeah, people are thinking that, you know, these crimes were committed in 2015, 2016. The statute, the SOL ran out. No, the SOL gets reset every time you commit an act in furtherance of it, which this is definitely an act in furtherance of it. I guess it could be argued that lying about it is also an act in furtherance of it, right? Because you're trying to cover it up. So that also, that also resets the clock anyway. All right. In the days immediately after the, the election, former Clinton campaign chair Podesta began speaking with associates about a specific potential research project, namely to create a nonprofit organization that would conduct research regarding election interference and would assist the U.S. government and the media in gathering information on this issue. Podesta spoke and met with Glenn Simpson, researcher executive, research executive one, and others regarding his idea. Podesta told investigators that he was unaware at that time or at any time prior to October 2017 that Glenn Simpson and Fusion GPS had carried out opposition work on the Steele dossier and related matters on behalf of Podesta's prior employer, the Clinton campaign. Did I read that right? Podesta told investigators. Okay, yeah, look. Um, looks like uh Looks like Durham interviewed John Podesta on January 19th, 2022, and that didn't leak to anybody, did it? Right there. Durham interviewed John Podesta January 19th, 2022, and nobody knew. Until now. 
I just I don't think I don't remember ever reading that Podesta had set for an interview with with Durham. I mean, you can imagine that he would, but or that he would try to anyway. All right, and approximately no, according to Podesta, he knew the camp knew the knew during the campaign that Perkins Coie was conducting opposition research for the campaign, but did not know who had actually conducting had been who had been actually conducting that research until October 2017 when he learned specifically that Fusion GPS had been paid by both the campaign and the DNC. Okay, so Podesta was the chair of the Clinton campaign, but somehow he was unaware of what Fusion GPS was doing. Don't buy it for a second. And approximately the late in late 2016 time period, former U.S. Senator Tom Daschle, I haven't seen that name in a long time, brokered an introduction between Podesta and Research Executive One, who previously had worked as an FBI analyst. As a Senate Armed Services Committee staffer and at a private firm founded by Daschle, the Daschle Group. By that time, exec- Research Executive One had founded and was running Research Organization One, which conducted research for private clients. Podesta assisted Research Executive One by helping him contact and vet numerous potential donors on the West Coast who would ultimately fund Research Executive One's research on election interference. Also, at around the same time, Around this time, Glenn Simpson recalled Research Executive One or called Research Executive One and sought his or her assistance on Podesta's proposed election interference project. Research Executive One and Simpson initially met for coffee in Washington, D.C. In December 2016, Simpson briefed Research Executive One on the work he had been doing concerning Trump's purported ties to Russia and expressed concern for his own safety. According to Research Executive One, Simpson did not mention and Research Executive One did not know at this time, that Simpson had been doing work for Perkins Coie or the Clinton campaign. In January 2017, Simpson and Research Executive One again met to discuss the potential research project. Also in January 2017, and as a result of these discussions, Research Executive One formed Research Organization Two, a nonprofit organization that would continue researching election interference issues including Trump's potential ties to Russia. Following its, inf- its formation, Research Organization 2 entered into a contract with Fusion GPS and hired a number of specialists to assist its research. Research Organization 2 also maintained a contact with Steele's firm, Orbis Business Intelligence, a.k.a. Walsingham Partners. As noted above, among the research that Research Organization 2 conducted, and provided to the FBI was an analysis of the Alpha Bank allegations. According to Research Executive One, he first became aware of these allegations when Senator Reid's office contacted him in 2017 to inform him of them. Research Executive One learned from staffer, a staffer for Senator Reid, whom researcher, Research Executive One knew from his time on the Senate staff, that there was a particular client who used the name Max. I know who that is. It's Joffe and who was behind the allegations. Research Executive One also learned that Reed had requested further information from the FBI about its efforts to investigate this matter because multiple senators were reportedly frustrated that, in their view, the FBI was not investigating the Alpha Bank allegations. 
Research Executive 1 agreed to research the issue through Research Organization 2. In conducting work on the Alpha Bank matter, Research Executive 1 isolated Fusion GPS from the project for reasons unknown to the office. Interesting. Hmm. They interviewed this researcher on April 14th, 2021. He declined to tell him his reasons for breaking this away from Fusion. Interesting. As a result of receiving this information from the Senate Armed Services Committee, researcher Research Executive 1 met in early 2017 with Sussman at Perkins Coie's office. This name, sorry guys, I'm, I know I'm stumbling over this name. It's throwing me off to say Research Executive 1 because I'm constantly saying researcher and, and research in a different, not as a name. <laughs> so it's like really throwing me off to say this as a purse. It's like breaking my brain <laughs> for some reason. At the meeting, Sussman discussed the allegations, including media reports concerning them. According to Research Executive One, Sussman did not identify his client by name, but stated that he, Sussman, was dealing with the government on the issue, that he was persuaded by the data, and that he was frustrated by the FBI's dismissal of it. Sussman also described to Research Executive One his interactions with the media and his frustration with their coverage of it. Later that year, Research Executive One again met Sussman at Perkins Coie regarding the Alpha Bank allegations. Sussman's client, Joffe, was also present at this meeting. During their discussions, Sussman and Joffe stated that they believed the FBI had sent the Alpha Bank allegations to the wrong investigative team. Research Executive One was told that Joffe was part of a multi-million dollar program that collected DNS data, which was the source of the data underlying the Alpha Bank allegations. I'm going to pause right here and give a comment. You know, Sussman and Joffe stating that the FBI gave the Alpha Bank allegations to the wrong investigative team. I think that's a tell. I really do. Sussman and Joffe, their hope. Everybody in this scheme, their hope was that their Alpha Bank allegations would go to counterintelligence and that it would wind up with Crossfire Hurricane people and Brian Auten and Andy McCabe, and they would be able to do with it what was being done with Papa D and that info, um, the suggestion of a suggestion, and Crossfire Hurricane, and they that's what they wanted. They wanted their Alpha Bank allegations to go to the, the bad element, the deep state element of the FBI. And... When that didn't work, they went to some senators and tried to get the senators to introduce this information. Joffe had connections to senators because he was friends with McCain and friends with other swampy people. I mean, Joffe's swamp, 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 uniparty swamp. And um, he's bad. And so, and he had all these connections because he'd been in Washington for decades and his company, Newstar, had all these federal contracts. Um, so he was using all of his Washington influence to try and get this Alpha Bank material to anybody who was on Team Deep State, who would take it and run with it, even though it had no basis, just like with Crossfire Hurricane and the uh, Steel Dossier, right? This was supposed to be a counterpart to the Steel Dossier. They and that's why they would be motivated to work on it all the way through to 2018, because they needed they needed the the Steel thing 
on its own steel falls steel dossier falls apart because it can't be substantiated. The Alpha Bank on its own falls apart. It can't be substantiated. It's flawed. Together with the bad guys, with the right deep state element in the FBI, they can create this scandal and keep the scandal going long enough to harm Trump and maybe even get him impeached. Because after all, Congress can impeach someone for for whatever they want. It doesn't actually have to be a crime proven by the investigators at the FBI, right? So that was their effort. That's what they were getting at. And I think that's a tell right there. I don't, I think that that's what he really means. Instead, the Alpha Bank allegations wound up with competent people who were like, oh, this is BS. <laughs> All right. During the same time period, Research Executive One had assembled an investigative team to examine the Alpha Bank allegations, including a number of DNS experts who had previously worked for multiple U.S. intelligence agencies. Research Executive One's team tested Joffe's data and conducted their own analysis. The team was skeptical of the Alpha Bank data and found no evidence of a secret channel of communications, but Research Executive One said, quote, it was something. Research Executive One also learned of the Yodafone allegations from Sussman. Research Executive One's team did some, but not a lot of, work on these investigations. Research Executive One told other or told our investigators that he was, quote, totally skeptical of the Yodafone assertions. Research Executive One understood that the EOP's computer network was run by the Department of Homeland Security, which contracted out the services to an unknown vendor with access to the data that formed the basis of the Yodafone allegations. All right, next section is meetings between DARPA and University One. We are on page 280. I'm, it's, we've been going 90 minutes. I'm going to take a short break so I can get some more water to drink we will finish this today um and i'm looking forward to it so thanks for being here guys if you're enjoying it if you like what i do please please hit a thumbs up over on rumble and um share the show if there's anybody you know that's interested in the uh durham in D- durham report and they don't want to read it but they'd be interested in a podcast version of someone like me reading it Here I am. Share them. uh, Share with them what I'm doing right here uh, on the Rumble channel and on Foxhole and whatnot, or send them my podcast. All of these I put on my over here on Substack, justhuman.substack.com. I make a podcast version of it, and you know, with that, especially with the podcast, the Substack app is really good. Um, But you can set it up to work with the podcast to appear on whatever app you prefer. But you can skip past all my commentary and stuff and just listen to the report. Um, but additionally, the Substack is the number one way to support what I do. Um, it's my preferred way. Everything on there is free, and it's free to sign up for it. But if you purchase a paid subscription, I really appreciate it. That's the best way to support me. And um, that's how I make this happen is it's it's you guys buying Substack, buying Substack subscriptions. It's the rants. And it's also... The honey. Hold on just a moment. Let me get over here. I need to show you what I'm talking about. So my substack, justhuman.substack.com, if you're interested. Additionally, if you want some honey and you also want to support the show, but really you just want some honey, vincenthoneyfarms.com. Their products are awesome. I've tried them all. I love them all. The honey and the soap are my favorites. Go to vincenthoneyfarms.com. 
Use rep code just human and I'll get a couple dollars off of it. You'll get some sweet honey and you'll help out a, an American small business that is just selling great products. Their honey is not pasteurized. It's not filtered. It's just raw honey, raw honey. I would suggest getting either the gift boxes or just get the pint squeeze bottles because that's what you're going to, that's just easier. These bottles are great and it makes getting the honey out really easy and saves you from making a mess. Right. Um, they're out of the big half gallon jars, but next time they come in, if any of you have the, uh, squeeze bottles buy the big jar and then you just refill the squeeze bottles. That's what I do. And lastly, if you want some merch, if you're in the mood for a, uh, a new pint glass, stickers, koozies, shirts, coffee cups, which are my favorite, of course, redwhitebourbon45.com. There's a just human section and you can find my merch. Uh, the coffee cups are definitely my favorite, but there are other items on there too, if you're interested. Okay. Like I said, I want to refill my, uh, I want to refill my coffee cup. So we're going to, uh, we're going to take a short intermission and when we come back, we are going to finish reading the Durham report. So let me cue up this intermission music. Here we go.
phase of my work that has earned me such names. You're in my laboratory. Just by pushing a few buttons, it's like the work of a wild animal. Now listen closely. Welcome back. Well, I glanced over at the news while I ran upstairs to make sure that my kids were not, you know, killing each other. <laughs> they're fine. They were actually, they're actually kind of cuddling with each other, watching a movie. Yeah, I took care of that. I'd, I'd eyeballed it earlier. Salt. I saw it in chat and I was like, I know where this guy's going. I know where it's going to end up. And I was just, I was just waiting for him to go all the way there so I could be sure of it and just go ahead and mute the guy. I didn't, something changed on rumble. It used to be that you could mute someone and it would just, that'd be it. They just couldn't type anymore, but it left their messages. But now when you mute, mute someone, it removes, it removes their messages. Uh, but whatever. Okay. We have some more of this to get to. I did, look, I did take a look at the news and saw um, 37 counts for Trump, and it's him and Nada um, were indicted. I'm looking at... I'm looking at possibly streaming on Monday morning. Um, I'm checking with uh, Absolute1776 right now because um, I'm going on his show, Sports Talk, over on Badlands Media on Monday morning. So if any of you guys like Sports Talk, I'll be on that show to talk about motorsports because the 24 Hours of Le Mans is this weekend. That's going to take up all of my energy. That's all my focus this weekend. Um, so about noon. Okay, noon on... Monday is when he wants me for that. So I'll probably do sports talk Monday at noon. And then I'll do a Durham indictment overview, maybe uh, Monday night. Here, let me check real quick. Let me check and see just how big the, how many pages is the indictment? Let's check. Forty nine. Yeah, yeah. So I better, I better do it that night. All right. If um, yeah. Let's just tentatively plan. Tentatively plan on that Monday night. We'll go through this indictment on the show. Trump and Nada. 
Ooh, these guys. They took the bait. They took the bait. I feel a storm. I feel a storm is really, really close. Okay. Where were we at? Meetings with DARPA and University One. Again, thank you everyone for uh, tuning in for this and um, and uh, yeah, supporting what I do. You nerds. All right. Meetings between DARPA and University One. In connection with its consideration of the Alpha Bank issue, the office also gathered information about meetings between a certain of the aforementioned University One employees and staff members of both the Senate Armed Services Committee and HPSCI. Oh, thank you, Sparrow, for the rant and uh, for your purchases. Thank you very much. In early October 2018, a representative of the Senate Armed Services Committee requested via University One's Government Affairs representative that researchers affiliated with the EA program provide a briefing to committee staffer members, staff members in Washington, D.C. personnel. All right, personnel at University One agreed to facilitate such a briefing. Footnote, the Enhanced Attribution Program, that's EA is intended to bring transparency to the actions of malicious cyber actions. That should say actors. Cyber actors undertaken by adversaries and other individual cyber operators. Transparency of the actions of malicious cyber actors undertaken by adversaries of under... Hmm. All right, enhanced attribution, EA. In late October 2018, another University One researcher, who is going to be University One Researcher 3, and a DARPA, DARPA program manager, who's going to be DARPA program manager 1, traveled to D.C. to provide the briefing. Upon their arrival, University One Researcher 3 and DARPA program manager 1 met with Reed Staffer 2. This is, this is great, isn't it? And in another committee staffer in the Russell Senate office building. At the meeting, which lasted only a short time, University One Researcher 3 and DARPA Program Manager 1 provided a broad and brief overview of the EA program, which they understood to be the purpose of the meeting. At the conclusion of the meeting, which had been cut short due to scheduling conflicts, Reed Staffer 2 indicated to University One Researcher 3 that he would like to schedule a follow-up meeting with University Researcher with University One researchers. University One is Georgia Tech, by the way. The following month, in November 2018, University One Researcher 3 and University One Researcher 2 traveled to D.C. to provide a second briefing on EA for staffers for the Senate Armed Services Committee. University One and Researcher 2 recalled that the night after the meeting, he spoke with Joffe, who told him about the Senate briefing. There was going to be another meeting Joffe wanted, to, wanted him to attend. Joffe told University One Researcher 2 that there would be someone to meet him and take him to his other meeting. The November 2018 meeting occurred in the Hart Senate Office Building, with Reed Staffer 2 and two staffers present. At the meeting, University One Researcher 3 and University One Researcher 2 gave an unclassified presentation regarding the EA program and the history of DNS. Sounds fascinating.
Following the meeting in the Senate space, Reed Stafford 2 informed University Researcher 3 and University 1 Researcher 2 that some of other people were interested in speaking with them. Researcher 3 and Researcher 2 agreed to meet with these other people, who turned out to be House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence Staffers, HPSCI staffers. But the meeting needed to be quick due to Researcher 3's schedule. Reed Staffer 2 then brought them into the secure space of the HPSCI. Before the meeting, Researcher 3 told Reed Staffer 2 that Researcher 2 did not possess a security clearance, to which Reed Staffer 2 stated that the briefing would be unclassified. Okay. I was checking a footnote there. After arriving in the HS, HPSCI Secure Conference Room, Reed Staffer 2 introduced Researcher 3 and Researcher 2 to several HPSCI staffers. During Researcher 3 and Researcher 2, during the meeting, Researcher 3 and 2 began to describe a similar presentation to, to that which they had given to the Senate staffers. Soon after the start of the presentation, however, committee staffers cut Researcher 3 off and showed him and Researcher 2 a news article about Trump, Russia, and Alpha Bank that Researcher 3 had not seen previously. The staffers asked Researcher 3 to read the article and said they wanted University 1's help with the matter, and Read Staffer 2 and Researcher 3 could make it easier. Researcher 3 said he responded by saying that it would be inappropriate for a public university to do that, and he suggested they contact DARPA. Researcher 3 told investigators that Reed Staffer 2 then said, quote, we are now in charge, end quote. And one of the HPSCI staffers said that their boss, Congressman Adam Schiff, would soon take over leadership of the HPSCI. Researcher 3 took the comment as a mild threat. Researcher 3 then said then um, he then dragged University Researcher 2 out of the meeting. Researcher 2 similarly recalled that Researcher 3 had quickly ended the meeting. Researcher 3 told investigators that he told Researcher 2, quote, don't touch this with a 10-foot pole. Stay away from this. Researcher 3 said he had no recollection of Researcher 2 mentioning the work and, he, and the research that he had already done at university regarding the Alpha Bank allegations. Researcher 3 recalled that he informed DARPA Program Manager 1 on his request from the HPSCI staffers, including his objections to the nature of the request. Researcher 3 recalls that DARPA Program Manager 1 listened but did not react substantively to the information. When interviewed by the office, DARPA Program Manager 1 denied learning of the AlphaBank allegations other than through media reports. DARPA Program Manager 1 maintained that he was unaware of any role that Georgia Tech personnel played in the Alpha Bank allegations. What's this footnote? Okay, OSC report, Researcher 3, August 10th, 2021. Researcher 2 recalled that the staffers showed him articles about Trump's DNS ties to Alpha Bank, and they had asked him and Researcher 3 if there was anything they could do. Okay. University One Researcher Three of Bank. Okay, next part: the relevant Trump Organization email domain and Yoda phone data. 
This subsection first describes what our office, what our investigation found with respect to the allegation that there was a covert communications channel between the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank. It includes the information we obtained from interviews of Listrack and Sendine employees. It then turns to the allegations that there was an unusual Russian phone operation or operating on the Trump Organization networks and the executive office of the president. We tasked subject matter experts from the FBI's Cyber Technical Analysis and Operations Section to evaluate both of these allegations. With respect to the allegation that there was a covert channel of communication between the Trump Organization and Alpha Bank, FBI subject matter experts conducted technical analysis and made assessments of the passive DNS data and information that was provided to the FBI and CIA in the white papers. We also interviewed employees of the two contractors involved in managing the Trump email.com domain, Sendine and Listrack. Sendine, a customer relationship manager or marketing services provider, registered the domain on behalf of the Trump organization in 2009. The IP address associated with domain is 6621613329 is and was operated by Listrack, a subcontractor. Footnote. FBI Cyber Division Technical Analysis Report, as explained by the FBI experts who assisted us in this area. Uh, we know what DNS is. Okay, we know what those are. Those are definitions. Okay. Listrack provides marketing information services, automation services, including bulk email. Listrack personnel stated that the Trump Organization's IP address was one of numerous IP addresses assigned to a cluster of four to eight physical servers that handle all outbound email for thousands of Listrack clients. Significantly, Listrack informed us that the IP address and domain used for the Trump Organization were configured to only send outbound email. Moreover, Listrack explained that as is customary for such services, no one in the Trump Organization had direct technical or system administrator access to Listrack servers. Indeed, the very notion of a, quote, Trump server is a misnomer, and that the servers involved did not belong to and were not controlled by the Trump Organization. To the contrary, the servers belonged to and were controlled by Listrack at all times. Listrack further stated that it never had, during this period of time, a dedicated server, physical or virtual, to handle Trump Organization communications. Rather, the server had hosted the Trump Organization house housed at hundreds of other clients, and that each server sent millions of emails out for clients. Sendin or Sendine personnel told us that the Trump Organization's contract with Sendine for digital and email marketing ended in 2015 but the domain name continued to be registered and pointed to the same IP address. Moreover, after Sendine's contract with the Trump Organization expired in 2015, Sendine continued to use the IP address to send emails out on behalf of other Sendine clients. However, there was no data provided at the time, nor is such currently available, that shows such clients, or shows which clients were sending email from the IP address during May through September 2016 time period examined in the white paper. Sendine, however, maintained technical control of the domain until March 2017. Similarly, Listrack maintained te complete technical control of its servers during the same May through September 2016 time period. Sendine does not retain outbound emails as they are marketing emails which are wiped from Sendine systems within 30 days of being sent. 
Because the Trump Organization had no access to the server or any of the systems involved, Listrack personnel told us that the only way any alleged covert communications channel could have existed would be if Listrack employees deliberately modified their mission-critical servers with non-standard software or configurations. But they pointed out that making such changes would risk the integrity, reliability, or availability of their systems. Moreover, Listrack told us that changing its servers to accommodate incoming messages would completely alter core structure of its business operations, which is primarily to send outgoing mass marketing emails. Listrack employees responsible for the design and administration of these servers categorically stated this did not happen and that it would be impossible for it to have happened without their knowledge and without affecting other clients' account functions and operations. In addition to investigating the actual ownership and control of the IP address, the office tasks FBI cyber experts with analyzing the technical claims made in the white paper. This endeavor included their examination of the list of email addresses and send times for all emails sent from ListTrack email server from May through September 2016, which is the time period the white paper purportedly examined. The FBI experts also conducted a review of the historical Tor exit node data. The technical analysis done by the FBI. Well, actually, let me let me look at this footnote real quick. The Onion Router or Tor is an open source. Know what that is? Our experts noted. Oops. Whoa. What did I do? I did not mean to click right there. Yeah, I'm seeing that Trump's case goes to Canon. Yep. Telling you guys, there's a plan. Not worried about this. Not worried about this, and I I don't think y'all are either. I know my regular audience isn't isn't uh, too too worked up about this. Is it two ninety two? There we go. We're on page two eighty four. I was trying to highlight down there and I accidentally clicked that list of Tor project nodes. Okay. Because the Trump organization had no access to the server or any of the systems involved, ListTrack personnel told us that the only way any alleged covert communications channel could have existed would be if ListTrack employees deliberately modified their mission critical servers with non-standard software configurations. But they pointed out then making such changes would risk the integrity, reliability, and availability of their systems. Moreover, ListTrack told us that changing its servers to accommodate incoming messages would completely alter the core structure of their business operations, which is primarily to send outgoing mass marketing emails. Got that. FBI experts conducted a review of Tor. The technical analysis done by the FBI experts revealed that the data provided by Sussman to the FBI and used to support Jaffe and the cyber researchers claim that a quote, very unusual distribution of source IP addresses was making queries for mail1.trumpemail.com was incomplete. Specifically, the FBI experts determined 
that there had been a substantial amount of email traffic from the IP address that resulted in a significantly larger volume of DNS queries for the mail1.trumpemail.com domain than what Jaffe, University One, Researcher Two, and cyber researchers reported in the white paper or included on the thumb drives accompanying it. The FBI experts reviewed all of the outbound email transmissions, including address and send time for all emails sent from the list track server from the May through September 2016, and determined that there had been a total of 134,142 email messages. With the majority sent on May 24th and June 23rd, the recipients included a wide range of commercial email services, including Google and Yahoo, as well as corporate email accounts from multiple corporations. Similarly, the FBI experts told us that the collection of passive DNS data used to support the claims made in the white paper was also significantly incomplete. They explained that, given the documented email transmissions from the IP address during the covered period, the representative sampling of passive DNS would have necessarily included a much larger volume and distribution of queries from source IP addresses across the internet. In light of this fact, they stated that the passive DNS data that Joffe and his cyber researchers compiled and the Sussman, that Sussman passed on to the FBI was significantly incomplete, as it included no A record, hostname to IP address, resolutions, correspondence to the outgoing messages from the IP address. Without further information from those who compiled the white paper data, the FBI experts stated that it is impossible to determine whether the absence of additional A record solutions is due to the visibility afforded by the passive DNS operator, the result of the specific queries that the compiling analyst used to query the dataset, or intentional filtering applied by the analyst after retrieval. The FBI experts also examined the white paper's claim that a particular Spectrum Health IP address is a Tor exit node and used exclusively by AlphaBank, i.e. AlphaBank Communications, enter a Tor node somewhere else in the world and those communications exit, presumably untraceable, at Spectrum Health. However, the FBI experts assisting us noted that Tor publishes a comprehensive list of exit nodes dating back to February 22, 2010. The FBI examined this data for dates between February 22, 2010 and September 1, 2021. No instances of IP addresses in the range of 167.73 assigned to Spectrum Health, were ever indexed as Tor exit nodes. That's like a huge error, guys. Like, I'm not a computer expert, but I know that Tor publishes a list of their exit nodes, and I know that it doesn't make, this doesn't make any sense. And the people who came up with this white paper, they would be aware, they would be aware that Tor publishes their exit notes. So I'm really surprised they included that in this unless it was set up to look like it was doomed to fail, like it was set up to fail. Like the researchers were just like, you know what? We're being ordered to do this by our bosses. Let's just put something together for them. But we're going to leave things like this that demonstrate that this is BS. You know what I mean? Cause that's such a big error right there. Offices. Footnote, the data used for the white paper came from Joffe's company Packet Forensics and Newstar. 
As noted above, Joffe declined to be interviewed by the office, as did Tech Company 2 Executive 1. The 850, that's I think that's Salerno, Salerno, whatever his name is. The 851 records of solutions on the USB drive were an exact match for a file of resolution sent from University 1 Researcher 2 to University 1 Researcher 1 on July 29, 2016, which was referred to as, quote, the first name of Tech Company 2 Executive 1's data. Ryan's data, maybe, or Ryan Salerno. Yeah, Ryan's data. Have you noticed, you guys noticed this? Durham uses Joffe's name. He uses Tech Executive One when he's referencing the indictment of Sussman. But he uses Joffe's name in this document. And he also uses Packet Forensics. But when it comes to naming the other company, Tech Company One, he just says Tech Company One. He doesn't say New Star. It's kind of peculiar. Uh, there's a reason for that, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. But yeah, I find that interesting. The FBI experts who examined this issue for us stated that historical Tor exit node data conclusively proves this white paper's allegation in its entirety. Moreover, the FBI experts further explained that the construction of the Tor network makes the arrangement described in the white paper impossible. Indeed, they added that even, tr even if true or possible, using the Tor network in the manner alleged in the white paper would result in the worst anonymization and security plan or worst anonymization and security than simply using Tor in its default configuration. That really is damning. Rather than allowing for clandestine communication, the setup described in the white paper would create a static proxy with a known endpoint that could be more easily traced with the traffic to relatively small number of guard nodes and which would allow for the identification of the true source IP much more easily than using a randomly selected exit node for each connection as the Tor system is designed to do. In simpler terms, the FBI experts told us that using a Tor exit node in the manner described by the white paper would make a secret communication channel much easier to find, not harder. And they further noted that although it is entirely likely that one or more users at some time connected to both Spectrum Health and AlphaBank using Tor, and may have even come through that same exit node, this possibility in no way indicates any kind of correlation because of the deliberately random nature of Tor routing. We also tasked the same FBI experts to review the white paper on Yodafones that Sussman provided to another government agency, CIA, on behalf of Joffe. This white paper stated that there was, quote, an unusual Russian phone that was operating on Trump Organization Networks and the Executive Office of the President. Its claims were based primarily on DNS resolution requests for the domains client.yoda.ru and ymaxclient.yoda.ru from July 23rd, 2016 through January 15th, 2017 from Trump affiliated networks, coupled with the assertion that such Yoda phone resolution request activity was rare in the United States. However, the FBI experts examined historical DNS query data for the Yoda.ru domains for the same time period as that analyzed in the white paper. 
Indeed, they examined data that the white paper researchers also had access to. In doing so, the FBI experts determined that, contrary to the claims set forth in the white paper, the DNS query the data actually indicated that resolution requests for those domains were not at all rare from U.S.-based IP addresses as compared with other countries. These experts further observed that the DNS query data used to support the white paper claims was deliberately filtered to select only those organizations in the United States with ties to Trump. Pathetic. In sum, as a result of our investigation, the FBI experts advised us that actual data and information on Yodafone resolution request directly undermined or refuted several conclusions and inferences included in the Yodafone white paper. All right. Now we get to a very important section. Prosecution decisions. We identified that certain individuals and entities promoted the Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations to the intelligence community. We examined the validity of the allegations, conducted technical analyses, and assessed the data and information that was provided to the FBI and CIA. We examined this evidence in considering whether the activities by these individuals and entities, as well as government officials, violated any criminal statutes. In particular, the investigation examined whether these individuals and entities either on their own provided or conspired with others to provide false or misleading information to the intelligence community. First, and as noted above, we identified certain statements that Sussman made to the FBI and CIA that the investigation revealed were false. Given the seriousness of the false statement and its effect on the FBI's investigation, a federal grand jury found probable cause to believe that Sussman had lied to the FBI and charged him with making a false statement to the Bureau in violation of 18 U.S.C. 1001. Ultimately, after a two-week trial, a jury acquitted Sussman of the false statement charge. We also considered whether any criminal actions were taken by other persons or entities in furtherance of Sussman's false statement to the FBI. The evidence gathered in their investigation did not establish that any such actions were taken. Second, our investigation uncovered evidence of actions taken by individuals and entities with ties to the Clinton campaign to promote the Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations to the intelligence community and Congress. We evaluated whether any of these individuals made a false statement within the meaning of 18 U.S.C. 1001 and whether admissible evidence could be sufficient to obtain a conviction for such an offense. We also considered whether actions taken by certain persons could have implicated federal election laws. We concluded that the evidence was not sufficient to obtain and sustain a criminal conviction. We examined as well whether the actions and conduct of Sussman and various other persons in advancing the Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations established a conspiracy to defraud the United States in violation of 18 U.S.C. 371. Ultimately, we concluded that our evidence was not sufficient to obtain and sustain a criminal conviction. We did not obtain admissible evidence likely to meet the government's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the individuals acted willfully. The general knowledge with, with general knowledge of the illegality of their conduct. 
We face significant obstacles in obtaining evidence because many of the individuals and entities involved invoked multiple privileges, including attorney-client and Fifth Amendment privileges. So, this is specifically in regards as to whether Sussman and other persons conspired to defraud the United States. And Durham says, that dog hunts, but we can't quite, we can't quite get there. Because we don't think we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. We don't think we can prove that they had general knowledge of the illegality of their conduct. And because we have these obstacles of people involved pleading the fifth and also attorney-client privilege. Third, we examined the FBI's actions in response to Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations. We assessed whether any FBI or other federal, federal official conspired with any other persons in promoting the Alpha Bank allegations to damage the Trump campaign or benefit the Clinton campaign. Our investigation did not find any evidence that the FBI official or employee knowingly or intentionally participated in some type of conspiracy with others to promote the Alpha Bank allegations or cause the FBI to open an investigation. Certain FBI officials, however, declined to be interviewed on the matter, and others professed a lack of recollection of it. Finally, we considered the conduct of third parties and other government officials regarding actions taken following the election that involved the continued promotion of the Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations to law enforcement and other government bodies. We did not, however, developed sufficient evidence to charge false statements or conspiracy crimes in connection with any intentional misrepresentations in this regard because it was unclear in numerous instances when particular data searches involving the alleged activity at the EOP were run and when specific data files came into possession of the relevant persons, i.e. whether such data was searched or identified before or after materials were received by CIA or Congress. In addition, because of the protections of attorney-client privilege and other impediments, <clears throat> we were unable to determine with precision or certainty who authored each of the relevant white papers. Accordingly, we did not charge any individuals with knowingly providing false information to the government in connection with the Alpha Bank and Yodafone allegations. Observations. In making the observations that follow, we are mindful of the benefits hindsight of the mindful of the benefits hindsight provides and the hazards of possibly being unfair to individuals who were called upon to make decisions under real pressure and in unprecedented circumstances. That said, the objective facts show that the FBI's handling of important aspects of the crossfire hurricane matter were seriously deficient. Some FBI, some FBI employees who were interviewed by our investigators advised that they had significant reservations about aspects of Crossfire Hurricane and tried to convey their misgivings to their superiors. Others had doubts about the investigation but did not voice their concerns. In some cases, nothing was said because of, the, because of a sense that there had, had to be more compelling information in the possession of those closest to the decision-making center of the case than had been made known to them. 
And there were still other current and former employees who maintained that they did the best they could to take reasonable investigative steps and acted within the FBI's various policies, procedures, and guidelines. As the more complete record now shows, there are specific areas of Crossfire Hurricane activity in which the FBI badly underperformed and failed, not only in its duties to the public, but also in preventing the severe reputational harm that has befallen the FBI as a consequence of Crossfire Hurricane. Importantly, had the Crossfire Hurricane actors faithfully followed their own principles regarding objectivity and integrity, there were clear opportunities to have avoided mistakes and to have prevented damage resulting from their embrace of seriously flawed information that they failed to analyze and assess properly. As described in Section 4, both the OIG and the FBI's Inspection Division have reviewed aspects of Crossfire Hurricane investigation into possible collusion between Russia and Trump campaign and the FISA applications targeting Carter Page. The OIG also conducted a more limited audit of the accuracy of 29 FISA applications that were not connected to Crossfire Hurricane. In 2020, the department and the FBI provided the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board 19 of the 29 applications reviewed by the OIG. The PCLOB is an independent agency within the executive branch that was established by the 9-11 Commission Act of 2007. The board's primary mission is to ensure that federal efforts to prevent terrorism are balanced with protecting privacy and civil liberties. The 19 applications were directed at counterterrorism targets, and Adam Klein, the, ch- the former chairman of the PCLOB, reviewed the 19 applications. Following the OIG's review and audit, both the Attorney General and the FISC directed that a number of changes be made. Outside commentators have also recommended numerous changes. In the FISA reform proposals put forth by various individuals and groups, there is division between those that would make all or many FISA surveillances more difficult or prohibit certain types of surveillance altogether and those that focus more specifically on the issues raised by the page applications. In making our observations, the office considered but did not include proposals that would curtail the scope or reach of FISA or the FBI's investigative activities. We are concerned about the impact of such proposals in a time of aggressive and hostile terrorist groups and foreign powers. The FBI's priorities include protecting the United States against national security threats, Inevitably, that involves pursuing some targets and investigations that end up yielding few results. The OIG review of the September 11th attacks noted that, quote, the FBI failed to use the FISA statute fully, and that it's an investigation of Zacharias Musawi, a potential 19th hijacker, the deficiencies, quote, included a narrow and conservative interpretation of FISA. More recently, for reasons that may include the COVID pandemic, the impact of the page FISA applications or changes in government priorities, the number of FISC orders using certain FISA authorities reportedly has declined sharply from 1,184 to 430 over a recent four-year period. Former Assistant Attorney General David Chris has said that in amending FISA, quote, you're doing surgery on a very complicated thing. He went on to say, quote, that may sound trivial, but it's actually very important for national security. Moreover, if amendments are not approached from a long-term perspective, 
quote, I worry that in the not too distant future, we may find ourselves on the other end of the familiar national security pendulum swing, reviewing a new inspector general or other report, this time criticizing the Justice Department for the proliferation of red tape or other restrictions and the failure to stop an attack or other grave hostile acts committed against our national security. Senator Graham expressed the same thought succinctly. Quote, I'd hate to lose the ability of the FISA court to operate at a time probably when we need it most. Thus, we first discuss below the prior review of the OIG's con- OIG conducted of the FBI's handling of the Robert Hansen investigation. That guy just died, like, last week. No, this week. This week. This guy died this week. Focusing on problems that appeared both in that investigation and Crossfire Hurricane. We then turn to measures to assist in the full and complete consideration of politically insensitive investigations and make FISA applications more understandable and complete for the officials and judges who review and approve them. We conclude with a discussion of bias and improper motivation and suggest one possible FBI reform for consideration by the department. We do not try to review all the many changes that have already been made, but rather seek to build on them. Okay, before we get into this section here where these are like Durham's recommendations. Um, I want to check that. I'm pretty sure I'm right. Robert Hansen, that's the uh, FBI guy who was a um, double agent for Russia who died this week, wasn't it? No, that's a serial killer right there. Is it? Okay. Oh, I spelled his name wrong. There's two S's. There's two S's. Yep, yeah, that's him. So if you guys don't know who this is, um, you should. There's um there's a few good videos on um YouTube, I'm sure you can watch about this guy. It's um Robert Hansen was a longtime agent with the FBI. He was pretty high up. He got to where was he at? FBI, I want to look at what his rank was. He was in Indiana office, but then he relocated to New York. Hansen was transferred to the counterintelligence and given the task of compiling Soviet intelligence for the FBI. In 1979, he was approached by the GRU, the Soviet uh, intelligence outfit. So this guy was working in counterintelligence in the New York office and he was feeding information to the Russians for years and years. Um, and he got caught and um, sentenced to prison. He just died in prison. Total traitor to his country, absolute traitor and scumbag. But I'm pretty sure he is the highest ever FBI official charged with serious criminality. I'm pretty sure if all the FBI people who have been busted, this guy was the highest up the chain with the most serious of charges ever leveled against um, against an FBI agent. Uh, Rain in the chat says there's a movie about it called Breach. I've actually never seen that. I'll have to look at that. Um, so, and that, but until Robert McGonagall, Robert McGonagall, or not, yeah, Michael McGonagall, what is it? whatever, McGonagall, he was in the FBI he was an FBI counterintelligence in uh, New York and he got indicted this past January, right? 
And so I think it's arguable which one is worse. I mean, this guy probably did more harm by because he gave more intel to the Russians, but we really don't know with McGonagall yet. Um. Anyway, it's interesting to me that Durham brings him up when I mean, I just I just think I just I just think it's another hint. The fact Durham is mentioning this guy and going into this talking about him just reminds me of the McGonagall case. And it really makes me wonder if Durham referred that to DOJ. It just makes so much sense that it that's where it came from. All right. The OIG's prior evaluation of systemic problems in the FBI's counterintelligence program. Robert Hansen was, quote, the most damaging spy in FBI history. For more than 20 years, while he was assigned to the FBI's counterintelligence program, Hansen betrayed the United States and gave the KGB enormous amounts of highly sensitive information, including the identities of dozens of human sources, some of, mo- some of whom were subsequently executed by the Soviet Union. The OIG conducted an extensive review of the FBI's failure to deter and detect Hansen as a mole and concluded that Hansen did not escape detection, quote, because he was a master spy or, quote, was extraordinarily clever and crafty, but rather because of, quote, longstanding systemic problems in the FBI's counterintelligence program. For many years, the FBI focused on a specific CIA employee as the potential mole. Although its initial focus may have been reasonable, As the time went on, quote, the FBI should have seriously questioned its conclusion that the CIA suspect was a KGB spy and considered opening different lines of investigation. The squad responsible for the case, however, was so committed to the belief that the CIA was suspect was a mole that it lost a measure of object. It lost a measure of objectivity. While FBI management pressed for the investigation to be completed, it did not question the factual premises underlying it. One of the OIG's recommendations for the FBI's counterintelligence program in the Hansen matter was that, quote, supervisors must guard against excessively deferring to line personnel and must ensure that the department is properly briefed on the strength and weaknesses of potential espionage prosecutions. A more cooperative relationship between this counterintelligence division and the department, the OIG later explained, would make it more likely case agents analytical and investigative judgments in counter-espionage cases will be adequately scrutinized. Other recommendations similarly concerned greater involvement for department attorneys, including, quote, a larger oversight role in ensuring the accuracy and fairness of factual assertions in, in FISA applications and direct access to the case agent and the source information relied on in the application. When considering Crossfire Hurricane, Some of the OIG's recommendations continue to be relevant, particularly by analogy. Numerous reports clearly state that Russia was trying to influence the 2016 presidential election. Footnote. Mueller report at four. Russia's Internet Research Agency carried out a social media campaign, blah, blah, blah. And the campaign involved, quote, to a targeted operation by early 2016, favored candidate Trump and disparaged candidate Clinton, Joint statement from DHS and the DNI. The intelligence community, quote, is confident that the Russian government directed the recent compromises of emails from U.S. persons and institutions, including U.S. political organizations. This was also the prevailing view of the media and is now and is widely accepted through 
out open source reporting at the time that Russia was to blame for the unlawful intrusion into the DNC servers. 1693 footnote. And it leads to several articles. Okay. One of the brief errors from the start of Crossfire Hurricane was the poor analysis the FBI brought to bear on the critical pieces of information that it had gathered, as well as an over-reliance on flawed or incomplete human intelligence that only later was found to be plainly unreliable. In July 2016, the FBI received the most damaging of the Steele reports, but mysteriously and unfortunately, these reports do not appear to have made their way to the Counterintelligence Division for analysis until after mid-September. Later in July, Australia provided the information from Papadopoulos to the U.S. authorities. The FBI then appears to have formulated a hypothesis that the Trump campaign, or someone associated with it, was working with the Russians. Neither the Crossfire Hurricane opening EC, nor those responsible for the investigation in the Counterintelligence Division or upper management, however, appear to have recognized the crucial need to analyze and then assess the actual ambiguities in Papadopoulos' statements to the Australian diplomats. Instead, the FBI immediately opened a full investigation. An investigation that clearly had the ability to affect an approaching presidential election. Indeed, executive management of the FBI and its counterintelligence division appear to have taken the paragraph 5 information at face value in, attempting, in, in opening the matter as evidenced by the opening EC. The opening EC cites the paragraph 5 information as essentially the sole basis for opening a full investigation on unnamed members of an ongoing presidential campaign. Then, when the Steele reporting finally was received by Crossfire Hurricane personnel in September 2016, it was immediately exploited, with no verification of its sensational allegations, and used in support of its initial request for FISA authority. The Steele reporting would eventually fall apart, but not before it had been continuously adopted by the FBI as supportive of its underlying theory regarding collusion. The intelligence community's analytical standards say that analysts, quote, must perform their functions with objectivity and, quote, employ reasoning techniques and practical mechanisms that reveal and mitigate bias. In the Hansen investigation, the squad responsible for the case, quote, was so committed to the belief that the CIA suspect was a mole that it lost a measure of objectivity and failed to give adequate consideration to other possibilities. The SSCI, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, Russia report observed that the FBI's analysts should endeavor, quote, to check assumptions underpinning FBI operations, to apply the rigor of intelligence analysis to assessments and confidential human sources, and to create a culture where questioning previously held assumptions is acceptable and encouraged. The office concurs with this recommendation. Apart from analytical integrity, in seeking FISA authority in Crossfire Hurricane, investigators withheld key pieces of information from the OI attorneys. The OI attorneys are responsible for ensuring the accuracy and fairness of the information presented to the FISC, an impossible task without being provided the re with relevant information. Both the OIG's review and this review highlight the omissions, errors, and misstatements by FBI personnel, including the withholding of significant exculpatory statements that should not have occurred had the Crossfire Hurricane investigators considered and treated the department lawyers as full partners. Rather, 
Crossfire Hurricane reflects a struggle by OI to obtain straightforward answers about Steele's possible bias and leaks to the media and Page's relationship with another government agency. Nor was OI told about the significant differences between the Steele reports and the statements Danchenko made to the FBI. In the follow-on Hansen Progress report, the OIG quoted a department official as saying that the department, quote, still has the occasional fight with the FBI to get full access to the information, particularly information pertinent to the reliability of sources relied on in the FISA applications. The Crossfire Hurricane investigation shows that regrettably, these struggles for accuracy and transparency were still occurring in 2016. Moreover, it is certainly to be hoped that with the new post-page requirements of the Sensitive Investigations Memorandum, the new guidelines governing the FBI's use of human sources, and other significant policy changes, there will not be a recurrence of the serious errors identified by the OIG, the Inspection Division, and our investigation. Absent continual reinforcement by FBI leadership of the need for integrity, accuracy, and objectivity in following these requirements, however, such is not a certainty. Next part, FBI investigations. The New York Counterintelligence Investigation. Hold up just a second. Sorry, I got a a text message I need to respond to real quick. When the New York field office opened a counterintelligence investigation of Page in April 2016, at a time when he was a foreign policy advisor to the Trump campaign, the investigation likely should have been treated as a sensitive investigative matter because of Page's role in the campaign. The attorney general has since addressed this issue in a desirable, though slightly different way. The attorney general must approve any investigation of a, quote, senior presidential staff member or advisor. A footnote explains that, quote, this includes any person who has been publicly announced by a campaign as a staffer or member of an official campaign advisory committee or group. Two, predication of Crossfire Hurricane. The FBI opened the Crossfire Hurricane investigation as a full investigation, quote, to determine whether individuals associated with the Trump campaign are witting of and or coordinating activities with their government of Russia. As described in Section 3, The standard for opening a full investigation is, quote, an articulable factual basis for the investigation that reasonably indicates that an activity constituting a federal crime or a threat to national security is or may be occurring, and the investigation may obtain information relating to the activity. The information that the FBI learned in July 2016 was that a Trump campaign advisor had suggested to the Australian diplomats that the campaign, quote, had received some kind of suggestion from Russia that it could assist the campaign. The OIG review found that the FBI met the requirements of the AGG DOM. That's the, um, those are guidelines uh, within the FBI. Because the, quote, articulable factual basis standard for opening the investigation is a low one. And the information from Australia, at least when considered along with what was known about Russia's efforts to interfere with the 2016 elections, met that standard. We are not confident, however, that this is the case. 
Our investigation gathered evidence that showed that a number of those closest to the investigation believed that the standard arguably had not been met. For example, both Supervisory Special Agent 1 and UKALAT 1 described the predication for the investigation as thin. Even Strzok, who both drafted and approved the opening EC, said that, quote, there's nothing to this, but we have to run it to ground. We should remember that Strzok said that. Because I think we're going to learn that McCabe told him to do it. Strzok's view would seem to indicate that the opening of the matter as an assessment or at most as a preliminary investigation. In any event, there are a number of other reasons to be concerned about the predication of Crossfire Hurricane. Apart from the need to meet the standard in the AGG DOM for opening a full investigation, Executive Order 12333 requires the use of, quote, the least intrusive collection techniques feasible. FBI policy says that, quote, when First Amendment rights are at stake, which they clearly were in a major party political campaign, quote, the choice and use of investigative methods should be focused in a manner that minimizes potential infringement of those rights. Moreover, the FBI will, quote, apply best judgment necessary to achieve an objective to assist FBI agents with their judgments, decision-making, and the need to employ the least intrusive means. The DIOG includes precautions when opening and conducting investigations in order to, among other things, encourage careful evaluation of facts and circumstances, as well as assess risk before proceeding with any investigative activity. In implementing these standards, the FBI could take one or more of the following sensible steps. Under the least intrusive standard, Rather than opening an investigation with a broad scope, quote, to determine whether individuals associated with campaign, the Trump campaign, are winning or unwittingly coordinating activities with the government of Russia, the FBI should have focused, at least at the beginning, on Papadopoulos, the alleged source of the information from Russia. On the other hand, the paragraph five information was not only connected to Papadopoulos, but also to the campaign as an alleged recipient of, quote, some kind of suggestion from Russia. Under the FBI's guidelines, the investigation could have been opened more appropriately as an assessment or preliminary investigation. FBI investigations opened as preliminary investigations, short of full investigations, include time limits and a narrower range of authorized techniques to mitigate risk and avoid unnecessary intrusion. Pretty sure y'all heard that boom. I was listening to see if a kid was about to start crying. I don't hear any crying yet. All right. <laughs> Maybe nobody got injured. <laughs> in the subsequent investigation of Page, <laughs> in the subsequent investigation of Page, under the Crossfire Hurricane umbrella, the FBI could have used additional, less intrusive techniques before seeking authority to conduct electronic surveillance under FISA. The paucity of, informa of information collected on key aspects of Page's activities would support an approach. This is, man, if I've ever read this word before, I don't remember it. What does paucity mean? Smallness of number, fewness, scarcity, dearth. Look at the big brain on Durham. Using a word like that. Kudos. We learned that's the word of today. That's the word of the day right there, paucity. 
paucity, smallness of number, fewness, scarcity, dearth. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that as if it's totally, I'm going to use that in a conversation with my wife tonight and see if she catches, she catches it. Try and impress her, maybe get a kiss. All right. Regardless of an investigator's preference for any of these steps, there are now additional requirements that apply to the opening of an investigation like Crossfire Hurricane. The sensitive investigations memorandum requires the attorney general to approve the opening of such an investigation. That an investigation like Crossfire Hurricane should require a concurring decision by the department rather than any one component or entity seems appropriate. We also believe that the proposal described following in E for an identified department official to challenge all stages challenge all stages of politically sensitive investigation would be another valuable way. So this would mean that today, um, that this would mean that, to, that the indictment of Trump, Garland had to sign off on it. Garland would have to sign off of it on it. It would seem. Yeah. Opening individual investigations. The FBI opened full investigations of Papadopoulos, Page, Flynn, and Manafort in August 2016 as part of Crossfire Hurricane. Again, in addition to the requirements of the AGG DOM and the DIOG, the approval requirements in the Sensitive Investigations Memorandum now would apply to these. The proposal in Section VE would also potentially apply to them. All right, compartmentation. We are almost done. And some of this stuff is pretty boring. I know it's like wonky policy stuff, but we're at the end. So let's just go ahead and read it. Unlike most FBI investigations, which are managed from FBI field offices, Crossfire Hurricane was managed from FBI headquarters. The information it collected was not shared with or available to others in the FBI, including, as described above, the Directorate of Intelligence. The OIG review says that, quote, because the information being investigated related to an ongoing presidential election campaign, the Crossfire Hurricane case file was designated as prohibited, meaning that access to the file was restricted and viewable to only those individuals assigned to work on the investigation. Agents and analysts used covert investigative techniques to ensure information about the investigation remained known only to the team and the FBI and department officials. Moreover, at least at times, even those participating in the investigation had limited information available. Supervisory Special Agent 3, who was tasked to supervise the Crossfire Hurricane investigators as a successor to Supervisory Special Agent 1, stated, quote, Contributing to the difficulties was how compartmentalized the investigation was, specifically the lack of information sharing between the intelligence analyst and the operational component. Even as the team lead, I only had access to limited information, and from the start of my temporary duty, I did not have a clear picture of everything going on in the investigation. I was managing the day-to-day -day operations of the case without having complete information. The investigation's compartmentation and its unusual structure as of headquarters investigation may have limited the amount of oversight that it received. In the past, NSA's collection of the internal communications of U.S. citizens and groups was also highly compartmented. A Senate committee chaired by Senator Frank Church investigated this activity. It reported, quote, In 1969, NSA formalized the watch list program under the codename Minaret. 
The program applied not only to alleged foreign influence or domestic dissent, but also to American groups and individuals whose activities, quote, may result in civil disturbances or otherwise subvert the national security of the U.S. At the same time, NSA instructed its personnel to, quote, restrict the knowledge that NSA was collecting such information and to keep its name off the disseminated product. The report found that, quote, NSA placed more restrictive control, security controls on Minaret, material that it, than it placed on highly classified foreign intercepts in order to conceal its involvement in activities which were beyond its regular mission. In possible contrast to the FBI, the CIA may not have compartmented some of the information that it had. The office learned at one point from Director Brennan that, quote, there was no effort at the CIA to restrict information because it was potentially embarrassing for Hillary Clinton. Obama just wanted the right people involved. That's a quote from Brennan. Let me, let's read that quote from Brennan again. This comes from Durham's interview with uh, Brennan, August 21st of 2020. This is what Brennan said. Quote, there was no effort at the CIA to restrict information because it was potentially embarrassing for Hillary Clinton. Obama just wanted the right people involved. I think, I think we should remember he said that because I think, I think there's some stuff we could, uh, we could extract. We could unpack from that right there. In combination, an unusually compartmented investigation bearing on politics will always involve risk, especially when it is the subject of significant media attention. In any event, in opening and conducting a sensitive investigation, <clears throat> the FBI should consider ways to balance the need for secrecy against the need to have a full and informed evaluation of the case. Leaks can cause great harm but so can a failure to understand the information collected or to take appropriate investigative steps. Five, interaction with the Trump campaign. Oh, hey, Miss Mermaid. Mer Miss Mermaid. Mermaid, Miss K, good to see you. Interaction with the Trump campaign. On August 11th, 2016, the FBI met with CHS1, who, as described earlier, was a long-standing FBI source. CHS1 had decided not to join the Trump campaign, but told the FBI that he or she was willing to refrain from notifying the campaign about his dis this decision. The Crossfire Hurricane investigators were, pl were pleased or relieved that the source did not want to join the campaign. But as to whether the FBI encouraged or directed the source to avoid notifying the campaign, the OIG review is less clear. Not notifying the campaign, of course, could in and of itself reflect or affect the company's staffing decisions or other activities. On September 1st, 2016, CHS1 met with the, a high-level Trump campaign official who was not a subject of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. This meeting was consensually monitored. The OIG notes that, quote, FBI and department policy did not require that the FBI obtain department approval to consensually monitor this conversation. Also in September 2016, CHS1 met with Papadopoulos. The OIG review says that the OGC unit chief told the OIG that because the operation targeted Papadopoulos individually and wasn't directed at anything related to the campaign, she thought that it was appropriate. If the purpose of CHS1's meeting with Papadopoulos was not to find out if the campaign or anyone on its 
behalf was conspiring with Russia, it is hard to know what the purpose was. I like it when Durham does stuff like that. I just want to say, after reading so much of this, I like how Durham delivers these subtle, these subtle just slaps. I, I guess that doesn't go together, but it's like, I can't wait for Durham to be in front of the committee and testify because that was great. If the purpose of CHS1's meeting with Papadopoulos was not to find out if the campaign or anyone on its behalf was conspiring with Russia, it is hard to know what the purpose was. It's like, man, it's it's devastating, but it's also eloquent. <laughs> it's great. I love it. All right. Defensive briefings. The OIG review discusses the FBI's decision not to give candidate Trump or his campaign a defensive briefing concerning the allegations that the Crossfire Hurricane team was investigating. The review does not discuss whether the decision was consistent with other decisions that the FBI has made about defensive briefings for political candidates. There are, of course, numerous investigations over the years that involve presidential and congressional candidates or campaigns, including allegations of foreign contributions, improper foreign influence, and other activities. He's talking about Hillary F. and Clinton. You know it. All right, let's. It, there is a footnote for it. Michael Finnegan, fundraising for campaign. Describe more $950,000 in unlawful donations to Obama, Clinton, McCain, and many others. Associate of Giuliani convicted. That's some Russian financiers, Michael Ward, Trump super PAC. Fine for contribution by companies of Canadian billionaire. Yeah. Okay. As described in Section 3, the FBI has now established a board, the FIDBB, to address defensive briefings. The Attorney General has directed the FBI to promulgate procedures on the subject, and the Attorney General has imposed additional specific requirements in connection with the politically sensitive FISA applications. These requirements, particularly the last one, require a serious consideration of the need for a defensive briefing, and we support them. And it's other footnote. OIG Review describes several White House briefings around the time in 2016 when FBI opened Crossfire Hurricane. Notes of a meeting taken by Deputy Director McCabe, who was not at the meeting himself, indicate that, quote, President Obama stated that the FBI should think about doing defensive briefings. But McCabe did not believe that the Crossfire Hurricane information from Australia would have been discussed. Mm. So McCabe wrote down a note saying that Obama wanted them to do, or Obama stated they should think about doing defensive briefings. McCabe didn't make it happen, though. That's interesting. See, I think, well, I Trump, I, I think that Obama and Clinton, they're not on the same team, and I don't think Obama was minding that Hillary Clinton was setting herself up to be investigated. I don't think Obama was minding seeing Hillary Clinton commit these crimes. Not because he was a fan of Trump. I just think that there you got two separate teams, and I don't think that Obama necessarily wanted Hillary Clinton to be well-remembered. Like That's why the Operation Snow Globe, right? It goes back to that Operation Snow Globe thing. All right, FISA issues. Clarity of applications. In 2020, the FBI and the department provided 19 complete FISA applications to the PCLOB for review. 
Adam Klein, chairman of PCLB, commented that, quote, the applications present the reader, the most notable, most notably the FISA court judge, with a great deal of factual information. This information, however, is sometimes repetitive and the organization does not necessarily facilitate critical analysis. The applications recite many facts related to the target's potential involvement with terrorism, but each fact's relative importance emerges only after very close reading. Overall, these implications provide a great deal of relevant information and generally aim to highlight potential question marks for the court. However, their clarity and organization could be improved. Former Chairman Klein has also written that, quote, steps to improve the clarity of applications would help drafts, drafters think rigorously about which facts are essential to probable cause, which are merely supportive and why the surveillance is necessary in the first place. Similarly, the FBI's public strategy says that it will improve data collection, accessibility, and analysis to better understand, anticipate, and mitigate threats. Although the PCLOB did not review the applications for surveillance of PAGE, as the applications did not involve terrorism, one of the white paper's observations, or some of the white paper's observations are relevant. Transparency of sourcing information. In the PAGE applications, much of the probable cause information was based on multiple layers of unverified subsourcing. Whenever that is the case, there is a greater possibility for bias or exaggerations to proliferate, even under ideal circumstances. We appreciate and support the effort of the department's OI attorneys made, which may have prevented even larger problems, to describe the sourcing for the page applications. In any application, the description of the sourcing information is of fundamental importance and should be as transparent as possible. It should include the FBI's insight, or lack thereof, into the reliability of each layer. This is even more the case where where what is described is the central contention of the application. In addition, the source and subsource information might have been easier to understand and been seen as having more importance if it had been described in the text of the application rather than in the footnote. Although former Assistant Attorney General Chris correctly notes that the FISC reads the footnotes and that, quote, the government's disclosures enabled the court to take Steele's information with a grain of salt, we see no reason not to lay out sourcing information as clearly as possible particularly when it contains subjective assessments. Information from Congress. That a member of Congress is concerned about the activities of a political opponent or someone in another political party or may have written to the Attorney General or the Director of the FBI about those activities would rarely seem relevant to a discussion of probable cause unless the member provides specific and credible information that is not available from other sources. Masking information. In a FISA application, it is clearly important to protect the identity of sources. This is typically done by giving them a number rather than providing a name. It also may be important to minimize or mask private or derogatory information about someone who is not the target of the application. The broader use of minimized identities, such as describing someone as Candidate 1 or attributing a news report to, quote, an unidentified news organization or an identified news organization, may not conceal much and may instead make understanding the application more difficult. It may also, even unintentionally, encourage a reader to think that because because one possible step to ensure legality has been taken, others have been too. In fact, whether information is minimized or masked has no effect on whether the information itself is accurate and supports a probable cause finding. 
All right, let me, I'm going to try and simplify that as a non-lawyer, non-FBI agent, non-DOJ official, non-expert. like The way I'm understanding these last couple paragraphs we just went over is that the effort to mask and minimize some information in order to protect the identity of people and sources is one thing, but it's getting in the way of these judges being able to make a good assessment of what's in front of them and make a proper decision. And it has no effect when you're minimizing the information or you're masking the identities of news organizations or candidates or subjects or whatever. It has no effect on whether the information itself is accurate and supports a probable cause finding. So you might as well just leave that information in there so the judge has a good understanding of what it is they're looking at. If that had been done in the Crossfire Hurricane case, then Page would have never had a, there would have never been a FISA approved on Page. Ever. All right, D, use of news reports. Former NSA General Counsel Stuart Baker has urged the FBI to avoid using media reports in FISA applications. The FBI has little knowledge of the reliability of the sources used by reporters and reliance on press accounts risk shortcutting the process of establishing probable cause. Amen. If the FBI uses a media source, it should disclose the name of the source, quote, and any credible claims of bias that have been leveled against the news outlet. It might also disclose what, if any, efforts it has taken to verify the applications. Need to share important information. In January 2017, the FBI interviewed Igor Danchenko, Steele's primary subsource. Danchenko said the Steele, that Steele, quote, misstated or exaggerated the subsource's statements in multiple sections of the reporting. The National Security Division, but not OI, was present at the interview. Because the interview involved an important subsource used in a FISA application, OI should, at a minimum, have been informed of what the subsource said. Completeness of applications. The OIG review concluded that FBI personnel, quote, did not give appropriate attention to facts that cut against probable cause. The FBI has addressed this issue by requiring that both an agent and a supervisor must affirm that OI, quote, has been apprised of all information that might reasonably call into question the accuracy of the information in the application or otherwise raise doubts about the requested probable cause findings or the theory of the case. The FBI has alleged that it, quote, will adhere to the rule of law through attention to detail. Finally, the Attorney General has directed both the FBI and OI to conduct completeness reviews. Implementation of the reviews may be difficult. An FBI CHS may have recorded dozens or hundreds of hours of conversations with the target or others engaged in related activities. For example, in the released transcripts of conversations among an FBI CHS, George Papadopoulos and others, there is clearly a large amount of extraneous information and it may not always be clear what is being discussed. Moreover, no no one may have listened to all the recordings or there may not be available transcripts. The FBI may also have a large volume of other raw records related to an investigation. Any of these factors may make it hard to identify information that, quote, raises doubts about the requested probable cause findings or the theory of the case. One possible way to implement the new requirement, at least in part, 
may be by asking on the FISA application or FISA verification form or elsewhere if the FBI is aware of particular kinds of derogatory information about the target. An example might be whether the FBI has information about the financial transactions being between the target and others associated with a foreign power. If the FBI is not aware of such information, the government may tell the FISC that the FBI either has no such information or that if it may have such information, it is choosing not to include it. The FISC could then consider the absence of such incriminating information when its assessment of whether the target is an agent of a foreign power. Moreover, in the circumstance where the FBI has unreviewed data relating to an investigation or data that is still being evaluated, OI may want to consider whether the FISA application should disclose that fact to the FISC. Man, this is wonky stuff. Kudos to y'all through sticking, sticking through it. wonky stuff. All right. Reliance on prior FISA applications. This is almost as, as boring as the stuff that Patel Patriot reads. All right. When the page FISA applications were renewed, reviewing officials may have placed too much reliance on the prior authorization by the attorney general and the FISC. Deputy attorney general Rosenstein noted that at the time when the page renewal application came to him, Many different department officials had approved the prior applications and three different judges had found probable cause. At least some of the requirements found in the supplemental reforms memorandum apply to both initiations and renewals of FISA surveillances. In addition, some kind of red teaming in cases with partisan risk might help here. Timely renewal request. Deputy Assistant General Evans has observed that the FBI should submit a request to renew FISA authority approximately 45 days after its expiration. In practice, renewal requests often come over from the FBI to OI a week, week and a half before the expiration. If the request came earlier, there would be more time for the robust back and forth needed to develop the applications. Implementing this proposal would require a significant commitment by department and FBI leadership. Even if the FBI is not timely in submitting a renewal renewal request, OI may be able to begin acquiring needed information by requesting it from the FBI or possibly seeking it elsewhere and asking to meet on a case 45 days before it expires. This may be worth the effort involved for a sensitive and important surveillance bias or improper motivation. This might get juicy. The OIG review of Crossfire Hurricane says that, quote, we did not find documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced the FBI's decision to seek FISA authority on Carter Page. It also says that, quote, while we did not find documentary or testimonial evidence of intentional misconduct on the part of the FBI personnel, we also did not receive satisfactory explanations for the errors or problems we identified. David Chris has cataloged statements in the OIG review like those above and discussed the, t- discussed the tension between the statements about the lack of evident bias and the lack of explanation for the problems found. In this report, we have referred to the possible impact of confirmation bias on the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. Confirmation bias is, a widely under, is widely understood as a phenomenon describing how information is processed by individuals and groups. It stands for the general proposition 
that there is a common human tendency, mostly unintentional, for people to accept information and evidence that is consistent with what they believe to be true while ignoring or rejecting information that challenges those beliefs. In short, people tend to give more credence to information that supports what they already believe. The effects of confirmation bias can be amplified in groups operating in situations of high stress and under time pressures. Throughout the duration of Crossfire Hurricane, facts and circumstances that were inconsistent with the premise that Trump and or persons associated with the Trump campaign were involved in a collusive or conspiratorial relationship with the Russian government were ignored or simply assessed away. Indeed, as set forth in sections 1, 4A, 2, and 3, um, from even before the opening of Crossfire Hurricane, some of those most most directly involved in the subsequent investigation had one expressed their open disdain for Trump two asked about when they would open an investigation on Trump and three asserted that they would prevent Trump from becoming president. As, as discussed throughout this report, our investigation revealed that the stated basis for opening a full investigation quote to determine whether individuals associated with the Trump campaign were witting of and or coordinating activities with the government of Russia was seriously flawed. Again, the FBI's failure to critically analyze information, they ran counter to the narrative of a Trump-Russia collusive relationship exhibited throughout the Crossfire Hurricane is extremely troublesome, to say the least. The evidence of the FBI's confirmation bias in the matter includes at a minimum the following information that was simply ignored or in some fashion rationalized away. One, the Australian diplomats told Crossfire Hurricane investigators that Papadopoulos never stated that he had any direct contact with the Russians, nor did he provide any explicit information about an offer or of assistance. Two, there was a complete lack of information from the intelligence community that corroborated the hypothesis upon which the Crossfire Hurricane investigation was predicated. Three, the FBI generally ignored the, the significant exculpatory information provided by Carter Page, Papadopoulos, and Trump Senior Foreign Policy Advisor 1 during the recorded conversations with FBI CHSs. Four, the FBI failed to pursue investigative leads that were inconsistent with their theory of the case, e.g. Page's recorded denials of having any relationship with Paul Manafort, a fact about which there was available evidence. Five, the FBI failed to take Page up on the written offer he made to Director Comey to be interviewed about the allegations contained in Michael Isakoff's Yahoo News article and instead opted to seek FISA surveillance of Page. Six, the FBI was willing to make use of the completely unvetted and uncorroborated steel reporting in multiple FBI applications targeting a U.S. citizen, even after the Crossfire Hurricane investigators had determined that there were major conflicts between the reporting of Steele and his primary subsource, Igor Danchenko, conflicts the FBI incredibly failed to resolve. 7. The Crossfire Hurricane investigators did not even ask Steele about his role in providing information to Michael Isakoff, as contained in the September 23, 2016 Yahoo News article, information that essentially accused Carter Page of colluding with the Russians. And thereafter, the same investigators demonstrated a willingness to contort the plain language of the article to suggest it was not Steele, but Steele's employers who had given the information to Isakov. Eight, 
the FBI ignored the fact that at no time before, during, or after Crossfire Hurricane were investigators able to corroborate single substantive allegation in the Steele dossier reporting. 9. There was a complete failure on the part of the FBI to even examine, never mind resolve, the serious counterespionage issues surrounding Steele's primary subsource, Igor Danchenko. 10. The FBI leadership essentially disregarded the Clinton plan intelligence, which it received at almost the exact same time as the Australian Paragraph 5 information. This was despite the fact that at, a precise, at precisely the same time as the Clinton plan intelligence was received, one, the Clinton campaign made public statements tying the DNC computer hack to Russian attempts to help Trump get elected, two, the FBI was receiving the Clinton campaign-funded steel reports, and th- man, Guys, Durham just called it the Clinton campaign-funded steel reports. Just saying. Three, the Clinton campaign-funded Alpha Bank allegations. Boom. Were being de- repaired, prepared for delivery to the media and the FBI. Eleven, the Crossfire Hurricane investigators essentially ignored information they had received as early as October 2016 regarding Charles Dolan a longtime Democratic operative with ties to the Clintons, who also possessed significant ties to Russian government figures who would appear in the Steele reporting and never interviewed him. 12. The Crossfire Hurricane investigators provided only partial and, in some instances, misleading information on department attorneys working on the page FISA applications while withholding other highly relevant information from those attorneys and the the FISC that might cast real doubt on their probable cause assertions. Finally, the results of the OIG's audit of 29 applications also established significant problems in the page FISA applications, problems that point to a bias and other factors. Following the audit, the department and the FBI, quote, notified the FISC that the 29 applications contained a total of 209 errors, four of which they deemed to be material. We note that because the audit did not look for omitted information, a major issue in the page application, the results of the audit and the review of the page applications are not directly comparable. Nonetheless, at least on the surface, the difference is notable. In the four-page applications, there were a total of 17 material errors and omissions. Yes, 17. Far more than the four materials errors, material errors found in the larger group of 29 non-page applications. So just to spell it out, what he's saying there is there's this other review that was done of FISA applications that doesn't include a review of page. It's, uh, it's 29 other applications. Within those 29 applications, there are 209 errors, and four of them have errors that are material to the application itself, meaning significantly impact that application, right? But just on page alone, there are 17 material errors and omissions. So one, one tar- one, there's four page applications, right? They have 17 material errors. These 29 applications over here only have four between all of them. So he's compare contrasting those to show you how severe the errors are in the page application. 
And I'm sure it's 17 for no reason at all. Totally a coincidence. Totally. Don't, don't make anything of that, guys. Given the foregoing, the viewing and viewing of the facts in light of most favorable in a light most favorable to the Crossfire King investigators, it seems highly likely that at a minimum, confirmation bias played a significant role in the FBI's acceptance of extraordinarily serious allegations derived from uncorroborated information that had not been subjected to the typical exacting analysis employed by the FBI and other members of the intelligence community. In short, it is the office's assessment that the FBI discounted or willfully ignored material information that did not support the narrative of a collusive relationship between Trump and Russia. Similarly, the FBI Inspection Division report says that the investigators, quote, repeatedly ignored or explained away evidence contrary to the theory the Trump campaign had conspired with Russia. It appeared that there was a pattern of assuming nefarious intent. An objective and honest assessment of these strands of information should have caused the FBI to question not only the predication of cro- for Crossfire Hurricane, but also to reflect on whether the FBI was being manipulated for political or other purposes. Unfortunately, it did not. Possible FBI reform. One possible way to provide additional scrutiny of politically sensitive investigations would be to identify in advance an official who is responsible for challenging the steps taken in the investigation. Stuart Baker proposes having, quote, a career position for a nonpartisan FBI agent or lawyer to challenge the FISA application and every other stage of the investigation. This would be done in investigations that, quote, pose partisan risk. In Baker's view, the Attorney General, through the Supplemental supplemental Reforms Memorandum, has already taken, quote, a good step in this direction by requiring that politically sensitive surveillance and search applications be reviewed by a special agent from a field office not involved in the investigation. Similarly, Adam Klein said, quote, the DOJ and FBI leaders should consider whether a regularized practice of internal red teaming in the most sensitive cases, whether within the FBI or in collaboration with attorneys at the National Security Division, could serve as an effective check on confirmation bias without unduly delaying time-sensitive applications. As a way to ensure full consideration of the issues and applications that may present very difficult and vitally important issues, we recommend that the department seriously consider Baker's, Baker's proposal for an official to challenge both a politically sensitive FISA application and other stages of the investigation. Quote, nothing, former Attorney General Levy warned, can more weaken the quality of life or more imperil the realization of the goals we all hold dear than our failure to make clear by words and deed that our law is not the instrument of partisan purpose. And that is the end of the Durham report. That is the end. Thank you all very much for listening to me read this. I managed to do it in nine parts. I think in the first part, I said that I don't want to do this and have it be 10 or 12 parts. Well, I did nine. So, 
<laughs> Although I still plan on uh I still plan on writing a substack which just has like the things about it that stand out to me the most, like the real booms, the real standout things about this report. So I'll do a, I am going to do that. I'm going to do a Substack that has like the highlights, right? Um, so y'all can be watching for that. It's justhuman.substack.com. It's free. Justhuman.substack.com. Everything on there is free. And all, but if you're looking to support what I do, it's the number one way. And I got to say with the news that came out today, with the um the Trump indictment this article right here that I wrote last August been thinking about it a lot I started to post it yesterday this article I'm just going to I'm going to chat with y'all that's the end of the Durham report stuff again thank you all um and thank you for the rants uh let's see ASC Labassi, ASC Labassi, Oscar Labassi. I don't know, but thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Daybreak. Thank you very much. Um, they ask a question. Thank you for your peace of mind. I thought I heard you say something to the effect that we are under change of government orders right now. What does that mean? I don't remember saying change of government. I maybe said continuity of government because I, I think that Trump instituted a form of continuity of government or devolution. Um, before he left office. So maybe that's what you heard me say. That would make sense because I think I said something along those lines on the last Devolution Power Hour. Von Hitch, thank you very much. Yay, us conspiracy nerds got through this. That's right. It's a pattern of Tim Trump stocks followed by everyone else. Biden Act will repeat indictments of Biden. Others, thank you. Yeah, dude, thank you very much. All right, I need to... um. I want to say, I want to get something off my chest before I go. Um, I should probably like end this stream and then do a new one. So it stands alone, but I'm not going to do that. All right. What I want to say is that the, um, this templates article has really been on my mind lately with this news of a Trump indictment. And when I wrote the templates article, I thought it would go this far to where it looked like Trump would be indicted, but I figured he wouldn't be indicted. I figured, but it would just be this narrative event where everybody thought Trump would be indicted and um, that that would be enough. That, the, that I didn't think there needed to be a template of actually Trump being indicted and us going through that. I just thought the threat of it, the narrative of it would be enough to accomplish what needed to be accomplished to set us up for indictment of other high officials. And that's what I figured the goal was. I figured that um, some of the legal stuff that needed to be established, some of the unprecedented situations that needed to be um, created in order to establish a process and a precedent for the process, um, meaning the template, that's what I'm referring to in templates. I thought that um, that could all be accomplished without Trump actually being indicted. And I think I was wrong about that. And I think that, I think I stopped myself short of considering that because I, it's evident to me that Trump is a longtime DOJ asset. 
since at least the 70s, or at least the 80s, probably started before that in the 70s. And I figured DOJ is not going to indict Trump. They're not going to indict Batman. But they have, as you know. And a lot of people, a lot of people came to me. I mean, dozens of people who read my templates article messaged me or whatever and said, hey, I think it's going to go all the way to Trump. I think that Trump's going to be indicted to establish the, the template. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't think it goes that far. And people, I get in a little bit of an argument with people about whether or not it would go that far. And um, a lot of people almost convinced me. They really did. I was resistant to it. And I, with the with the news of Trump being indicted, I'm looking back at it and thinking about what I was getting at. And I so wanted to post it yesterday, but I didn't want to like self-promote off of a Trump indictment <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> like that that seems improper. Um I'll let the DeSantis campaign do that, which is what they did. Um, but I truly believe that if anything in this article that I wrote is uh, worth remembering, that it's this section right here. That the Mar-a-Lago raid, the filter team, the the special master who ended up getting appointed and then struck down later. It's all good news. And even including the special master being struck down in the 11th Circuit court ruling uh, was good news to me. Um, and, it, and you can see it as good news as long as you think big picture and you defect from these news narratives. Thanks to all this stuff that I listed in this article and what has happened since, we now have precedents for search warrants being served on major media. That happened with Project Veritas. Now we can, let's do it. Let's do it to some others. A president's former attorney, Michael Cohen, a, a former president's personal attorney, Rudy, a former president's residence, Mar-a-Lago. And now we have a precedent of a former president being indicted. A filter team and a special master was used in each one of these cases that I just listed. What do you want to bet we see one appointed in this new one? Or at least Trump trying to get one. And I believe it's a template. I believe it is a template to go after the Clintons, Obama, their attorneys, their media, and all the people who assisted them in their crimes against the United States and we the people. It's a template to go after them. And when I look back at... uh this article and I think back to it. Man, I just get this sense. Nothing can stop what's coming. I'm like, there's, there's this such this pattern. There's this such a pattern here. And it for perfectly fits with Trump saying that he'll take all the slings and arrows for us. He's he's really exp 
he's he's really brought this on himself for the service of this country, I believe. I wrote this article and gave it this subtitle when FBI raids are actually good news. And I don't know how many people actually uh, caught the uh, double meaning that is there. There's a, there's a double meaning to that subtitle. The uh, surface meaning is kind of like, oh, I'm saying that the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago was good news. And I am. I am. I'm saying that the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago was actually good news, and a lot of people missed it. I'm saying it's good news because of the templates that it set. But what I truly mean with that subtitle is to say when, when, a time in the future, when FBI raids are good news, it's going to be this time period. When there are FBI raids on the residences of the Clintons, for example, on Mark Elias, on some others like that, they were involved in this crime that we just read the Durham report about. When they are raided by the FBI in the future, when this template is used to go after them, that's why I said when FBI raids are good news. Because I'm looking forward to this time period. So. Remember, guys, we're not going to win every battle, but we are going to win this war. Thank you all very much. And uh, God bless each and every one of you. I am going to try to defect from the news cycle. I'm going to try to stay out of all of this for the next couple of days. 24 Hours of Le Mans is uh, this weekend. It's always a big event at this house with me and my boys. We're going to rearrange this room down here so that we can build some Lego cars and we're going to set up a giant Hot Wheel track. I've got... Every year I print out the I print out the spotter's guide right here with all the cars that are racing and me and the boys track the progress of the cars. And then when one retires, we X that car out. And um, you know, it's a we we go and find Hot Wheel cars that look like the cars that are in the race and we line them up and it's a big event. I make a giant breakfast. We try and stay up all night, and uh, but we usually fall asleep for a few hours, you know. Um I've been limiting my coffee all week. I've been drinking half as much coffee as I usually drink. So that the coffee I drink this weekend will be that much more effective. <laughs> it works. It works. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I got, I got, I'm going to, I'm going to check out. So if you don't see me posting for a couple days in a row or so, that's what's going on. I'll be back on Sunday night for defected. We have some, uh, we have some good topics to talk about. I'm sure I'll be exhausted but we have some good topics topics already picked out. And then on Monday at noon, I'll be on um, sports talk on Badlands radio or Badlands radio, Badlands media um, with uh, absolute 1776. We're going to talk about Le Mans. We're going to talk about formula one and it's going to be a motorsport focused show. 
probably talking about the Indy 500 too. And then Monday night, I'll present the uh, the Trump indictment. So, God bless, guys. Take it easy. Have a great weekend. And thank you very much. I'll see you later.